All right.
All right. It looks like we've started off with technical difficulty again. Um, you're here listening to Seven Sense uh, here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your hostess with the least most who can't get the act together. We don't know why. Suddenly we can't get sound from one computer to the soundboard. Hi. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. So I'm the hostess with the least most the radio TV, Eddie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis. Wow, you had no sound on my end? That's true, just uh, some background shuffling, and that's about it. Um, this is getting to be as challenging as um, the space station for Houston. You know. <laughs> we have a problem. It worked perfectly fine. Yeah, we worked perfectly fine last week. So nothing's changed. I don't know why it wouldn't work this week when it worked perfectly fine last week. All right, I'm going to have to have, see if I can find someone come over and help me run through this and find out what the heck is going on here. Anyway, it helps if I also change the video and bring our smiling faces up so people can see us. And if they go to our website, they can go to the Rumble Talk chat that I have on going on there, and they can actually see the video live. Well, let me see if I can pull. What am I doing here? There we go. And, of course, it's not playing. And it's showing it. There we go. Well, hopefully, yep, we got it. Houston, we have liftoff on Southern Census webpage. Ah, jeez. You never know what's going to happen, right? Oh, man. Anyway. Uh, all right. Anyway, we've got ourselves a nice lineup today. It's going to be a fairly quiet day. We only have three guests. We have Ann Silvers. Um, she has a new book out called Abuse of men by women. It happens, it hurts, and it's time to get real about it. Now, that's followed by our friend and your your friend, Sheriff Gator Deloche out of Putnam County, Florida. And then we have a former Phoenix police chief, uh, Daniel Garcia out of Arizona, uh, and he's also an executive at K-West, uh, which is a very interesting company. And considering that on the heels of all these shootings, I'd be very interesting to see what uh, his answer is, and also hearing what Gator has to say about all these, especially Uvalde, Texas, uh, about these shootings going on. So we've got ourselves an interesting show. Now, I was going to play a clip about D-Day, because Monday will be the 78th anniversary of D-Day, Curtis. Oh, I also want to give a shout-out to those that are in the chat room here up on uh, Blog Talk Radio and those that will be uh, coming in on uh, the Ramble Talk. I've got Rumble Talk. I've got going on. And why can I not get into this? I can't believe this. Uh, We've got some strange noises coming in on this thing. You hearing it, Curtis? Yeah, unfortunately, I... it's, on, it's on my end. Um, Carolyn, when she <laughs> she contracted the landscaper to come out and mow, she forgot to tell him not to do it on Fridays between 1 and 4. <laughs> so I've been ha- having to try to mute most of this program so far because they're out there mowing and trimming. I tell you, it's like a reality show. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, jeez. Well, anyway, I was going to play the uh, clip from Reagan uh, 
for a D-Day celebration, a really nice 13-minute clip. Uh, but if I'm not getting the sound from coming into my soundboard, I've got a problem. Uh, so we'll see what we can work out and what we can do a little bit later on in the show. Um, but there is an article that is up on this month's Newsweek by Nancy Brinker. And a lot of you will remember that she was the United States ambassador. Um, and she writes a very, very interesting op-ed piece. And it's titled, D-Day, A Reminder to Stand Up to Evil. When a democratic nation is threatened, democracy everywhere is challenged. So today's show, today's dedication, is going out to the 78th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944. And this reads, June 6 marks the 78th anniversary of the Allied landing at Normandy, also known as D-Day. Troops from a dozen countries, including more than 150,000 American, Canadian, and British forces, landed along a 50-mile stretch of the heavily fortified coast of France. They fought bravely and with a sense of unyielding determination to triumph over fascism. The level of selflessness and that that influenced the men and women of those fateful days was born by the Great Depression and hardened in a battle against evil itself. It's also a lesson some Americans appear to have forgotten today. Once again, more than three-quarters of a century later, we see the scars and tragedies of war in Eastern Europe. Russian President Vladimir Putin has led an unprovoked war of aggression against the Ukrainian people, which has resulted in not only the unnecessary loss of life, but also war crimes and the destabilization of international affairs in a critical area of the world. Some here in America have questioned whether we should be engaged in this conflict. They claim we do not have a dog in the fight, and we should instead turn inward to tend the garden at home. These misguided notions were wrong in advance of World War II, and they are wrong today. When the sovereign freedom of one democratic nation is threatened, wherever they may be in the world, democracy everywhere is challenged. History has shown that we can be strong at home and simultaneously defend freedom in the world. The only question today is how we continue to respond. Timid actions from the United States and the broader world community in the aftermath of Putin's previous invasions of Georgia and Crimea projected weakness and thus invited further aggression. Questionable international resolve, whether it be from the United States, NATO, the EU, and other international organizations and alliances, will almost surely invite a similar fate in this instance. Even worse, it could inspire other nefarious actors. China, uh, Russia is watching, but so are China and Iran as well. The United States should continue to send arms and humanitarian aid to the Ukrainian people to enhance their self-defense in the short term and protect against further aggression long term. 
This can and should be accomplished through burden sharing among allies, which will get more aid to Ukraine much faster. We do not need American boots on the ground or a U.S.-led no-fly zone to protect Ukraine. Additionally, America should work in concert with our allies in implementing more coordinated and targeted economic sanctions on Putin, Russian oligarchs, and high-ranking members of his regime. Russian diplomats and international business interests should be isolated from global institutions, and the U.S. should further commit to the expansion and modernization of our own national defense, both militarily and economically. Some will say these steps are akin to beating the drums of war. It's nothing of the sort. America is, as Abraham Lincoln said, the last best hope of earth. We stand for freedom. While we are not the world's policemen, we must do what we reasonably can to support democracy and defend it against the rising tide of land-grabbing regimes intent on undermining global order. We have a stake in this fight, and it's time we recall the sacrifices made by generations past and present to preserve and present the current world order. The world and freedom benefit from a strong, ideal-driven America. Such was the case in Europe 78 years ago, and that remains the case today. Wow, she said it so well. And this weekend, especially Monday, take a few moments and remember the bravery that was exhibited on that invasion in Normandy. The sacrifices that were given up by those men and women that went to fight fascism and tyranny. And the sacrifices made here at home, too, to help support that war. Once again, we're going to be called. Can we and will we stand up and fight once again? Well, today's show is dedicated to the anniversary, the 78th anniversary of D-Day. And to all of them, we dedicate the song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. God bless each and every one of our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our proud future. And we also dedicate to the brave men and women here that serve as first responders, the law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. God bless each and every one.
I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America I stand proud and free My name is America Don't tread on me I cannot be I stand for my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest hour because my name is America. I stand for. Yes, 
yes, yes, hopefully so, hopefully so. Anyway, just trying to get the show posted up to other pages and everything else, so everything else looks fine, but uh, once again, banned from YouTube. <laughs> I'm such a bad girl, such a bad girl. Anyway, um, there's so much to talk about, and we have our first guest calling in in a few minutes. Uh, we've got those two excellent uh, law enforcement officers that will be also joining us uh, later on, so we're going to be having a lot to talk about. Um, I, I don't know if you noticed, Curtis, you know, my state, like yours, is fairly open, you know, especially after the COVID, the COVID pandemic is now an endemic. Um, but I've noticed more and more people are wearing masks. Have you noticed that lately? Well, not in my area, but <clears throat> when I was in Orlando last weekend, there, there seemed to be more people wearing masks. And I think that's because they, they're talking about this this monkeypox. They're starting to scare people pox? with that one. Yeah, that's the new one. Well, that's the, the follow-up to um, COVID. That's the one they're going to use yeah. um, the World Health Organization to um, really take control over us. In other words, um, you don't get the, sh- the shot, the jab, or whatever. The World Health Organization can say, hey, y'all need to be quarantined. Um, and, and at a you know encampment or something like that, and we'll have to go unless we fight. Yeah, well, it's going to be a fight. Um, first off, we discussed on the show previously that they had done this desktop um, scenario, and what was the virus they used? Monkeypox, and they oh. had a specific timeline about when it was going to occur. And how and how many people would die? Well, we're finding out it's not as lethal. It's just a form of um, smallpox, which you know, we we have vaccines for that that are safe, are proven to be safe. Um, but it's amazing how the actual outbreak matches exactly their desktop scenario. Now, how did these people know almost two years prior, a year and a half prior? when they held this thing and then filed their report, which is, you know, available to the public and actually named the exact dates it would be released. Now that's, well, that's a little odd, isn't that? Yeah. It's, it's like a lot of people. Um, I don't believe in coincidences that much. And I believe this well, is all construed, you know, it's planned that the, you know, People are tired of COVID now, so they got to come up with a new scare tactic. And this, this is a great one to follow up. They'll say it's a new strain, strain, and um, more deadlier than what was known about this well, um, particular disease. And we we have to take it seriously. Well, actually, Dr. Robert Malone, um, he's the one that was one of the whistleblowers that was actually at the forefront of the mRNA uh, vaccines, and he was the one that blew the whistle on it, saying, wait a minute, you know, just take a step back here first. Uh, And so he's gotten, like, banned everywhere. So he has his own blog, R.W. Malone, M.D., at the – well, he has the website substack.com. You do 
W. Malone, M-A-O, I'm sorry, M-A-L-O-N-E, M-D, dot, substack, dot com. And you can read his article where um, he's saying that there has been significant uh, developments in this, and he draws the timeline. Now, the scenario shows that uh, the attack would start on May 15th and run its most serious course through June 22nd. So we're going to find the outbreak in this imaginary country. Well, guess what May 15th was? It was the date when there was this gathering, a large gathering, of gay and bisexual men. Who does this monkeypox virus attack? Sexually compromised, immune-compromised individuals and the people that are hitting are all gay men, bisexual men. Isn't this very, very strange that it was released on the exact date? Now, Malone says that this, the only way this could have occurred is if it was, was man-made. The same way the Chinese manipulated the Wuhan virus that we call COVID, he's saying the same thing happened here with the monkeypox, that this has been man-made wow. manipulated. And the timeline is following exactly the dates of this festival, and it's being released into all the countries countries exactly as they did it in the scenario. We've got a guest in on the line, so we're going to change a little tack here. And welcome on to the show. At first time she's joining us, Anne Silvers. She's the author of a great book called Abuse of Men by Women. It happened, it hurts, and it's time to get real about it. Good afternoon, Anne. How are you today? I'm good. Good afternoon to you, too. Yeah, you have a very, very interesting book. And unfortunately, I did not get a chance to read all of it, but I'm not someone that sits there and just does this off the top of my head with nothing. I have to tell you, my late husband, God bless him, um, his prior wife to me, and we were together for 30 years, um, his prior wife was one of those abusers. So when I got to meet him and I was thumbing through your chapters and everything else, I'm going, this is exactly what this poor man went through. And people don't realize. They think you talk domestic abuse, and it's women or children that are being abused, but men get abused too. Yes, and in pretty much equal numbers to women. Yeah, and and I hear a lot However, from um, I hear a lot from second wives or um, even you know, not necessarily that it was a, a previous wife, but from women who are partners to men who were abused by a, by a previous female partner. Yeah, and unfortunately, they don't report it. And most of them feel like they're either guilty or their ego would be bruised, that they have to admit they allowed a woman to do what she did to him. Uh, in his case, she stabbed him. She broke his ribs. Oh. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. And he never reported it. And I, I always found that amazing, but yet I can also understand the mindset. Um, here he felt he should be the defender of women, so how can then you be a victim of a woman abusing you? Yes, and it's, it's why I am so passionate about getting the message out. Um, I, I spent three years writing the book because 
I found nowhere to send my male clients who were experiencing currently being abused or were abused previously, and they're trying to heal from that. Every every place I could find that talked about, I mean, there's a handful of books, um, but the online sources, they give lip service to, oh, yeah, okay, it can happen to a man. But then they're quickly, but it doesn't really hurt them doesn't really matter um, and and all their examples are he's bad and she's good and a man who's already struggling with trying to get their head around what the heck I think I'm being abused um, if they go to someplace and all they see is is he is the abuser that's going to set them back um, so that's one of the reasons for the book now, there's various ways in which women can abuse. It doesn't necessarily mean an actual physical attack. How are the different ways that a woman can use her various talents, if you want to call them that, uh, in yeah. order to abuse her partner? Yeah, so there's seven forms of partner abuse that can happen in any gender configuration. Uh, there's the emotional, I call it emotional slash psychological. I put them in in the same category, and every other kind of abuse is going to have an emotional and, and psychological component to it. So there's that one, there's verbal, um, physical, sexual, financial, legal, and spiritual. And so mm-hmm. abuse can happen in any of those forms. Now, you, when you say spiritual, you're talking about using your faith or your alleged faith, uh, to bludgeon someone into a, a mental state that, how do you, how, how does that happen? How do you turn faith against a person? Yeah. Well, I, I love the term that you use, bludgeon, um, because it is such a deep wound when you use faith to manipulate somebody. Um, so some cases are, um, you know, let's say an, abuse, uh, an abusive woman goes to the, um, the spiritual community, let's say the church community, and goes to the elders or the minister and utilizes uh, them to join in, in keeping him stuck in the relationship, you know, telling him, you know, he, he should, you know, either, either marriage is forever or, you know, that he's the problem. Um, so in that way, potentially abusing or using the church community, you know, some false accusations, you know, going to the church community with false accusations. I had one guy who was very dedicated to his church community and she started the rumors around about false accusations against him. And so the community turned on him. So at the very time when he was the most vulnerable and in need of support, his his favored support system was gone. Um, another way is to get in the way of you being able to perform reasonable spiritual practices. Like one example was um, a woman who was always creating roadblocks for the husband to be able to attend church. Um, you know, abusive people don't want their targets of their abuse to have a support system. Um, 
those or, or another way is to use scripture or sacred writings, uh, manipulate that to uh, be controlling uh, of somebody. You know, when, when we, I, I saw this part of that faith, um, it brought me back to a couple of times where that was used against me, not by a partner, but by someone from the church. I had been in um, cardiac ICU, and I had listed down that at that time I was Roman Catholic. And a deacon appeared in my room at ICU, and uh, uh, he's looking at me and goes, well, I haven't seen you in church lately. And he says, I actually have not because I'm losing faith in the Catholic Church. I've seen too many things, but I'm not completely mm. agreeing with it. You're going to burn in hell. This is from oh, the I'm sitting there oh, with two all over me. Oh, <laughs> that is sad. Yeah, and, and spiritual and, abuse is such a deep, deep wound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at that, that moment, I said, well, there was another church I was looking at, which was an Anglican church, very open, very friendly. And from that moment on, I said, uh-uh, that's it. I'm making sure the documents are changed on this hospital. But he didn't oh, do that just oh, once. He actually, he actually tried to get into the room a third time, and I turned around to the nurses, nurses station and says, he's not to step anywhere near me. He's to stay away. And they made sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The consequence yeah. is not with that church anymore anyway. But, yeah, it's very easy. And had it been a lesser person, if I didn't have that inner strength in me, to say, oh, oh heck no. Um, exactly, and you already were, you already were going through a process of disillusionment, and so he was not able to um, hurt you quite as badly as if um, you were, you, you know, that if you were attached to the doctrine, and then he's the mouthpiece of the doctrine, that would have been an even deeper wound. Yeah. Now here I was in a highly vulnerable position. I'm in mm-hmm. cardiac exactly. ICU. And when you have someone that vulnerable, it is so easy to manipulate. And people don't realize how easy it is to manipulate someone without them realizing it. And that's, I think, yeah. a major point in your book, too. Yeah, exactly. That, that uh, in, in a way, when somebody is being manipulative, it kind of, a couple of things go on. One, it sort of sneaks up on you, um, typically. I mean, they don't usually come in uh, guns blazing, right? So... Um, there's a uh, um, building up of it, typically, that sort of acclimatizes, accustoms you to it. And and the, the other thing is, one of the things I say is that, that, you know, when people are a manipulative person, if they're in a relationship with somebody, they have so much access to that person. If they try one manipulation and you start to see through it and you resist it, they can just come in and experiment with another manipulation until they find something else that'll work. So this is one of the really challenging things about being in a relationship with an abusive personality. Yeah, it, it is. It's very funny because unless you realize what that person is doing, and um, when I was going through my notes and everything, thinking, it actually made me go think back to my first marriage and you know, here he wooed me, he chased me, he, he proposed to me four times. 
I said no the first three times, and mm-hmm. I was stupid enough to say yes the fourth time. But, you know, over time, he then withdrew from me. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. So and, and at that point, I said, uh, no, just before the 10th anniversary, I had separation papers drawn up. I handed it to him. And the last thing I did was I picked up the cat. I was, I was walking out the door. And he goes, where are you going with the cat? And I very simply said, you don't want one pussy? And you ain't getting another. But you have to you, – what we need to do is just to make people realize what's going on and to help give them strength to overcome it. Yes. So it's, it's a very confusing place to be in a relationship with an abusive person. Um, and that's one of the ways that they keep you uh, stuck. And, and, yeah, it does take something that opens their eyes and supports them in order that they can get a clearer mind and, and see what's really going on and, and be able yeah. to look through their options and make some decisions for change. Well, I heard you start to gasp when I told you the final line I said to when I walked out the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess your listeners are used to it. Um, I'm, I'm not approved, so let's <laughs> But I'm surprised she hears him on the radio. <laughs> Hello, well, you Ann. Know, um, that's for Ann Silver's Ann. I'm oh, Annie. Hi. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I was Go going ahead, to ask a Curtis. question. Yeah. Go ahead. Would you would you say that historically, when it comes to the abuse of men by women, it is more of an emotional level? And when it comes to men and their abuse of women is more physical. Um, I would not. So um, how would you how would you categorize it? Yeah. So I think that the emotional abuse is always going to be the most common. Um, and and abuse does happen in degrees, and so you could have you know mild degree of it or everything to extreme. Extreme is what we see in like the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story, where she was extremely abusive. And um, so psychological and emotional are always going to be the most common, whatever gender configuration you're dealing with. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time seeing um, that physical abuse can happen female to male. One of the reasons being we're constantly told it doesn't happen as often, and and that's actually not true. It does happen as often. Um, There's a great – I mean, there's, there's multiple research studies that, that back up what I just said, but one of the most profound ones was a a U.S. national um, intimate partner violence survey that was done in 2015. It was done in 2010 and again in 2015. And and in 2018, the CDC came out with a report on that 2015 survey. And when we look at the answers that people gave to the questions about has this, you know, physically abusive thing happened to you ever in your lifetime, we have very similar numbers, male and female. Um, When they actually looked at the research results for the same survey, research results for being asked the question, has this or that happened to you in the last 12 months? Again, various ways of being physically attacked. Um, We actually have more men who were physically abused in the previous year than women. 
And one of the people I've talked to says, you know, his theory on that is that men tend to want to forget they were physically abused. And so the lifetime number is a little bit smaller than the 12 month number. And even when another way that people tend to minimize it is by saying, well, yeah, okay, it happens to men, but it doesn't really hurt them. That's not true either. So that same survey um, found that equal amounts of men and women were severely physically abused by their partner in the previous 12 months. And by severe means, they, they showed marks, you know, bruising or um, things that took them to a doctor for treatment. Um, so it's an illusion that it doesn't happen as often to men. Now, just curious, because I've been saying this, and I, I, I'm, I'm praying that you, you can back this up, but with the lockdown in COVID, uh, we see a rise in mental illness, which would include domestic abuse. Um, how, how high have those numbers gone since these pandemic lockdowns? Okay, so I've heard um, there were two different things I heard about this. One was fairly early in lockdown, uh, we heard that uh, domestic violence had gone up. Later, research came out that said, no, it actually didn't. Um, so I'm, I'm left thinking, no, it actually didn't. Um, we certainly did have an increase in uh, anxiety a lot more anxiety. Um, so I'm just left with uh, either it didn't happen that that DV went up, or I don't know. <laughs> I'm willing to go with either of those. But um, I'm I no longer think that we can uh, assume that it went up. Now, what would be some of the reasons why a woman would abuse her her? her, her boyfriend, spouse, whatever? Um, so very similar reasons to why anybody might. And, and uh, it's a great question because the, the general domestic violence community is very attached to the idea that domestic violence happens because of patriarchy. Well, if it happens because of patriarchy, it can only be man to woman. And, and this mm-hmm. has colored their research and treatment. Um, from I came up with 72 reasons why a man could abuse a woman or a woman could abuse a man or, you know, same gender people could abuse their partner. Um, if, it's, if it's male to female, then, yeah, patriarchy might be, might be a component, but I think it's much more likely in a highly patriarchal society, which I, I don't think we have anymore. Um, and so it could be mental illness. Uh, I've seen a lot of anxiety-driven uh, partner abuse, which can, again, abuse happens on de- in degrees. So um, it could be any degree of partner abuse being stimulated by anxiety. And in that one, there tends to be, it, it runs a lot of controlling and demanding behavior. Um, if the anxious person isn't taking responsibility for their anxiety, they can feel like, oh, I'm in all this pain. And if you would just do what I'm telling you to do, I won't be in all this pain because I have all this anxiety. And you refuse to do what I'm telling you to do, therefore, you know, then they lash out at the person. Um, mm. It could be other mental illnesses. It could be personality disorders. This is what we saw in, with um, 
Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp's psychologist who was very professional uh, and impressive. She diagnosed Amber with two personality disorders, borderline personality and histrionic personality. Both of those um, belong in a cluster of personality disorders that have four in them called cluster B personality disorders. It includes narcissism and sociopathy. And there's a lot of similarities in traits with all of those. And all of, each of those could drive um, abusive behaviors. We could have somebody who just doesn't know how to communicate well. Um, somebody who isn't in control of their anger. Somebody who has been abused as a child or bullied. Um, somebody who's actually the other version where they've been treated as a princess. Uh, as they grew up and so they have this controlling demanding you must do what I want you to do uh, attitude um, it could be drugs and alcohol um, so, so there's a lot of reasons why somebody might uh, behave in that abusive controlling demanding demeaning ways you know as again going through my notes uh, doing a little speed reading um, a lot of this I flash back to things I personally know, and um, I don't know if, if, if uh, they told you before you came on the show that I'm retired NYPD, so I, I'm seeing this, from, I'm looking at this in all different angles, uh, but there was a point, because uh, you talk about, you know, uh, some, some sort of a physical reason, such as, for example, the woman going through the change of life, menopause, mm-hmm. and I remember... Uh, going to my doctor at the time I started going into menopause and he put me on hormones and after taking them for about maybe two days my my husband, rest his soul uh, looked at me, he picked up the bottle and threw them out and he goes, don't take them and I'm like, why? I had no idea that my personality changed and that dramatically he knew me from the loving, gentle person the tough, loving, gentle person uh, into some other creature. I had no idea that I was doing anything wrong. And that, that, that's yes. also a possibility where you yes, have such exactly. a, a change in yourself physically. Right. So it could be hormonal changes. It could be um, like a, uh, a brain injury. We, we see that in some of the, some of the um, football players. Mm-hmm. develop, they had brain injuries and they develop an anger problem. Um, so anything that could create an anger problem uh, could potentially turn into abusive behavior. We also see that with returning combat veterans uh, being misdiagnosed with traumatic brain injuries, uh, which then causes massive problems in families and breakups. And we see that a lot with homeless veterans, too. Uh, and a growing number of homeless veterans are now women themselves, uh, which is a very interesting uh, demographic there. So there's so many different ways in which we can approach this. And when you do have someone come before you that is a domestic violence victim, a gentleman, um, what process do you go through to determine what's been happening to that person and how to help them out of it? Yeah, so it, it is uh, not a one-size-fits-all. So it's, it's taking a look at, at um, assisting them to disclose, to talk about what has happened. Um, 
sometimes abuse can be mutual and uh, or or bi-directional. It could be happening from both directions. And so sometimes what we need to do is, you know, eliminate whatever he might be doing. Um, and when we do that, then we can clearly see what is the other person doing. Um, and that can really help somebody get a clearer view because they typically will often be told over and over again, well, I'm only bad to you because you're bad to me. Um, so if we can take you know, teach somebody to stay calm in a, in a situation, then maybe he can see more clearly whether it was partly him or if it's not, it's all on her um, or almost all on her. And so that would be part. And then looking at, um, you know, if you're using some unhealthy coping mechanisms, can, uh, can we replace it with healthy coping mechanisms? Help him go through a process of what are your options here? Um, it can be very tough for a guy who has children, his abusive partner. Um, he might worry that if he leaves, it'll be worse for the kids or that he will be pushed out of the kids' lives. And um, it's, it's a reality that family court does not tend to be as friendly to men. Um, so there's a lot. Of, and another thing, that he could be worried financially about can, can two households survive. So helping somebody work through, what are your options? Can we make a plan that works you towards you know, step-by-step um, and then part of it also is just really helping somebody come out of the fog of um, the spinning in their own mind, the confusion about what is happening to me. Well, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, oh, I, I just want to follow up on this one, Curtis. Um, you mentioned about, you know, withholding uh, child custody. And we see this so many times, especially in the news or in other uh, areas um, where where the woman would withhold custody of the child from her partner, her spouse, and there was a famous Texas case with the two twin boys where she transitioned one boy into a girl without the father's permission. We see this more and more in divorces. Yes, it's a it's a huge problem in terms of. Um, the custody battles and the inequality that we're seeing in family court. Um, there's such a propensity um, to believe women and not believe men. Uh, that's a big problem in, in family court. And false accusations are rampant. And then we have parental alienation uh, where a, one parent is alienating the children from the other parent. And, and this, is, this is different than, you know, if somebody really has to protect the children from um, a harmful parent. Parental alienation is you've got a good parent that is being um, undermined even within the eyes of the child by a manipulative um, mother or father. It just seems like it's more often... A, a manipulative mother doing the parental alienation. You know, we, we see this often. Yeah. Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> I'm sorry. Outside of um, using children as a pawn and the power play or growing up being, you know, 
princess type. Do you see these women who abuse men on an emotional level? Do they tend to be more like women who have a lot of money and or they use sex as a, a power um, tool to abuse their, their men? So that's a couple of ways it could show up. I, I, um, you know, one form of financial abuse would be if a woman has more money and, and she's controlling it in in a in a, in a punishing way or a um, demeaning way. Uh, it's the flip side of what we've often, you know, most often think about. I think in, when we think of financial abuse, probably what most people flash onto is the the older picture of a man um, controlling the money and not letting the woman have it. The flip side can happen where the woman is controlling the money and, and not let the woman have it. Uh, the, the woman is controlling the money and not let the man have it. One of, one of my guys um, worked, you know, physical labor, had his own company, worked seven days a week, long, long hours, and um, – he made quite good money, and, and every time he wanted to buy a new piece of uh, clothing for being you know, more uh, comfortable outdoors while he's working outdoors for 12 hours a day, she would make a big fuss. But if she wanted something, there was just um, she would just make it happen. Um, that particular case, when uh, they did get separated, uh, he discovered that uh, she had, he knew she had been running the books. Um, she hadn't paid the taxes for years, and he got left with uh, years of taxes to pay. And, uh, <laughs> Boy, she, she got the money. Does that bring back debt. memories? <laughs> oh, there you go. Boy, does that, because that's exactly what happened to my, my husband. Um, not only did she cut up his clothing when he was getting ready to leave her, uh, but w- after we got married, uh, I get a thing from the IRS, and I'm one of those that pays my taxes. I always filed them the 1st of February. Because by then, I had all my 1099s. I had everything all prepped and ready. And all of a sudden, I get this huge tax bill in the mail, and she never filed his taxes. And I got stuck. <laughs> I was the one that ended up paying them. Wow. But the IRS was wow. good. They, they, actually, they actually knocked off a lot of the penalties and everything. They said, well, you know, they did work with me. So it, it was an ouch, but <laughs> we got through it. So, yeah, I could fully understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard the tax thing many, many times. And um, in in each case, the woman had, again, running the books. The guy's working hard, long hours running, doing the business, and um, thinks that she's helping him by doing the books and in each case that she had actually told him I've paid the taxes and he had good reason to believe the taxes were paid. And then he's left with this debt um, in the end. Yeah. Now, um, and, and then the there, was another, there was another, okay, go ahead. No, no, I'll finish. Please do finish. Uh, there was something else that, that uh, the gentleman asked me about. There it was a two part question. There was one about the finances, but then there was other, maybe it was about sexual abuse or? Curtis, my co-host, Curtis. Did Curtis mute himself again? 
He's, he's got people working oh. on his lawn serving out. Yeah, it was, more, oh. it was more about women who use their um, sexual prowess to manipulate men. Yes. Um, yeah, I think this is a great point, too, is um, there are some, you know, a lot of a lot of the way that partner abuse shows up, whether it's a male who's doing it to a female or vice versa or, again, same sex, um, is common no matter the, the gender configuration. And then there's some kinds of abuses that are available because of the particular genders of the couple. And um, females can have this seduction as, as one of the ways that they abuse men and trap them. And um, one of the biggest ways is pregnancies that are accidental but on purpose. It's a powerful yeah, way purpose. to trap a man. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, she, she could be trapping him for a relationship. She could be trapping him for money. Um, she could be just using him to have uh, a pregnancy. There was one young man. And so one thing I want to say about this, I find this to be quite common, actually, and I've had a blog post for years called Eight Red Flags, The Pregnancy is a Trap. And that blog post has gotten 100 hits a day for years from all over the world. Um, And one man that I talked to, he was young, didn't want to have kids, um, and his partner certainly knew he didn't want to have kids at that point. And he... Uh, walked into the master bedroom suite one day after they'd had sex and she was taking out of the garbage can in the master bedroom bathroom, she was taking the used condom out of the garbage to tr- to inseminate herself. Jeez. So men have to be very careful um, uh, about being trapped with a um, manipulated pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. And, and women can also use sex as a uh, reward and punishment. And, and this is different than I just don't feel like it today. I mean, that's, that, that happens and that's natural. But this is what I'm talking about is a more malicious, more manipulative, I'll give you sex if you do what I want you to do. And I'm going to not give it to you if I consider you're a bad boy. Um, and again, that's different than a normal, you know, I've got a headache or, you know, you really genuinely hurt my feelings today. So I'm not up for it. Um, this is a more malicious manipulative thing. Well, and then on the flip side, uh, instead of getting pregnant, um, they would then have the abortion without the father of the child having any say. That's another form of manipulation, is it not? Yeah, that one gets really complicated. You know, I think it, you have to look, you'd have to know really the details of the situation to figure that one out. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly where to land on that one. <laughs> well, you know, there's also the false accusations where we see things, and I did not truly follow the Johnny Depp trial or anything, but I'm understanding there's a lot of false accusations which caused him to have the uh, defamation uh, lawsuit and the, the winning the case. Correct. 
Um, and, and so Johnny is a, he's done all, so much to help other men that are falsely accused. We just have gone through this terrible phase of the believe all women phase is a terrible idea. And, and I understand where it came from. It came from a believe no women. Um, and, and the, the pendulum swang too far and, and needs to come back to a central point. Like, okay, listen to accusations, consider them, acknowledge them, and then uh, suspend judgment unless, unless and until you know more details. Um, but this, you can't believe all women. Believe, all women are not truthful. And it was no. a powerful uh, thing to put in the hands of an abusive woman. Uh, just another no, way for her to abuse her partner. Yeah. Now, in this case with Johnny Depp and his estranged wife, wasn't there a mental health component to her? Yes. Yeah, so she was diagnosed. Um, Johnny's, um, uh, they hired a psychologist to um, meet with her and run her through a battery of tests and, and uh, diagnose her and they looked at a lot of um, te- other testimony and talked to other people. It was Dr. Curry. Um, and she diagnosed Amber as having two personality disorders, borderline personality and histrionic personality. These are in the same cluster as narcissism and sociopathy. And there's a lot of similar traits. And every one of these uh, are um, in the very abusive women. These are these are fairly common to be part of what's going on. Um, well, now exactly what and, is borderline personality? Yeah, so borderline. It's it's not that you're on the borderline of uh, whether you have a personality disorder or not. It's it's actually gonna on uh, the name came out of being on the borderline of being psychotic. Um, these people tend to be um, excruciatingly uh, self-centered, severe, severe fear of abandonment. So if they have any sense that they are being left uh, or left out, they will have extreme anger reactions. They're very manipulative um, and uh, can be very controlling, demanding, and have you know, huge anger problems. Uh, they also run very hot and cold. They love you or they hate you. Um, and so they don't tend to have uh, friendships, uh, don't tend to last really long. Um, and they tend to uh, love bomb people. So they draw people in with this heightened adoration and um, they seem like they're just this fantastic partner but that's just a facade their their reality is they this bad temper this um, very demanding controlling manipulative self-centeredness all right and then the other one that you mentioned histrionics yeah, histrionic. We can kind of put it together with hysterical, you know. So they're very dramatic, mm-hmm. um, like to play the victim or the hero, 
And we see that in Amber. Um, at times she's playing the victim, and then other times uh, she really loves playing the heroine. Um, and then, you know, another persona they can, the histrionic can take on is the princess, and at other times she's the princess. We saw this in her testimony where she's having these lavish um, stories she's telling about when Johnny proposed to her, and, and it's this mansion that they were at, and she's describing it, and, and just histrionic people, they, they talk too flowery. They, you know, it's all this heightened drama. Um, and it certainly describes how her testimony went. Mm. So again, I wasn't following it at all. <laughs> I just felt I had better things to do in my day, but maybe I should have, uh, because it opens up a whole new way of looking at it, and it helps me also understand what my husband had gone through with his previous wife. Even though you know I did understand a lot, but you now as you explain it, then I can I can start to to see more uh, because like you said of uh, burning burning things or hitting them or stabbing them or even you know withholding denying and uh, not paying the taxes uh, there's a whole lot that was there that you know I thought this was like just a rare thing now we find out that men are abused as often as a woman is yeah yeah and we need, you know, if we don't see it as a culture, we contribute to it. We, you know, culturally, we're, we are supporting women who abuse men. You know, partly we're ignoring it, and that's a way of supporting it. Partly we are actually actively supporting it. Like, you go, girl. And then sometimes we're making fun of it. And so how hard does that make it for a man to come forward or even recognize what's happening to him? We have to, as a culture, care about this. There's an empathy gap in general when it comes to males. And that's another thing we need to address and um, question ourselves. Why do we do that? Why do we care less what about males than we do females? Um, now, you, well, when you um, also talk about the financial abuse, you, you had mentioned about getting him a to buy her things, uh, demanding uh, he buy and controlling. Um, but also, you mentioned stealing, stealing of the money, but also ruining their credit. I mean, that is a hard hurdle to overcome. I mean, because today's day and age, you can't do anything unless you've got decent credit. Right, right. So imagine it as a somebody being in a relationship with an abusive person and it, uh, this particular example could go either way and and but what they do is they run up the credit cards and let's imagine that they're the one in charge of paying them because that's the duty that they've taken in the household and um, and they don't pay it and so the credit rating goes down I, I've known of people who find out that the mortgage wasn't being paid when they thought it was. That's another way of, you know, ruining the credit for the person. Um, and then, and then it can become like an exit strategy. You know? Spend all this money, um, run up the credit, run up what's owed, and then leave the person and leave them holding holding the bag. Now they've got bad credit and they've got debt. 
Now, I, I'm curious, is how do they keep the family financially burdened? What is it they do? Is that just make sure he keeps on earning money to pay for everything? So it's the same way as if ruining the credit? Yeah, so, so an example that comes to mind is this, this young couple where the woman was, they, they, they were um, not wealthy people. They they struggled at at sort of just regular you know pay the rent that kind of thing in in modest circumstances, and she in she would buy a fifteen hundred dollar purse and uh, things like that and just keeps the keeps the unit the family unit in this financial constraint that he is constantly having to try and dig the way out of. And then how much harder is it for somebody, for some man to decide, I'm going to leave, when, you know, what's going to happen to her? Um, He can feel sorry for her financially, or he can feel like, I can't carry it all. Um, So keeping the family financially burdened can be a way of keeping the guy stuck. And then again, she could also refuse to do any contribution, you know, Hey, I'm the I'm the woman. You're supposed to be taking care of me. I'm not going to take a job. Yeah, either playing playing sick, like it's different than somebody who's really genuinely can't work. But um, like I'm, I've known of couples where you know she's constantly um, running some sort of well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna work. You just have to buy me this thing, like know pay for this education but then the education finishes and she still won't work or you know buy me into this um you know let's say mary Kay or you know something and so there's an investment made into that but then she doesn't really do it and i've heard a couple where this just keeps going around and around in a cycle or it could be somebody who just feigns illness um and so refuses to, um, and by feign, I mean, you know, pretends they're sick um, mm-hmm. uh, so that she is not contributing and he just has more, more he's carrying than, than is uh, fair or reasonable. Yeah. Now, um, looking through the uh, physical abuse part, what the heck is cat fight techniques? Well, cat fight techniques. So, so picture picture how uh, you know this women fight with each other. So uh, fingernails and it's a clawing clawing at somebody. You know, when you think of a kite, a, a cat rather. Um, you know, <laughs> it's claws. So that kind of thing, hair pulling, um, those sort of scratching at somebody, that kind of thing. Well, I grew up with two brothers, and I don't think we ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up with three sisters, and we didn't. We did not do that either. But we were not. We were not physical with each other. I don't, I don't think the police academy would have graduated me if I fought like a, a girl like that. <laughs> if I didn't know how to throw a punch. <laughs> Yeah. So we and in fact, you know, in in Johnny's case, I think there are pictures of him him with scratches on his face. Hmm. Uh, he certainly there certainly are pictures of him having a black eye and bruising on his face, but there also is of him having a scratch or two. 
Now, uh, under legal abuse, you talk about the DV con game. What is a DV con game? Yeah, the DV con game is a a woman working the system, a a woman who was not abused, um, actually was the, either was not abused and and, uh, she was not actually physically abusive with her husband either, but she was uh, emotionally or psychologically abusive. Uh, or a case where cases where women are actually physically abusive with their male partners, and then they are done with the relationship either because he's called it quits or she's called it quits for some reason, and then she um, runs the DV con where she accuses falsely accuses him of domestic violence. Um, and gets him in trouble. So it's way easier for getting a guy, um, a restraining order against a guy with with false accusations of abuse than it is for a guy to pull that off. Um, and so it's a pretty easy con to run because of the climate we're in that is just, you know, the believe all women uh, concept which hopefully, I'm I'm very hopeful that the Johnny Depp story has um, really exposed that uh, for the abuse that it is. And you know, I was just going to add that guys in the military share the same fate as what you just said, because with this no tolerance, and, and of course we know sexual abuse go on in the military, but the guys are really at the mercy of women now because they're going to they're going to listen to the woman, and it could be something like she didn't get a promotion or she likes a certain guy who's her supervisor, and he he scorns her, you know, and so she's going to get some payback. You know, I, I feel sorry for those guys because I know a couple of them went through those accusations and it ruined their careers. Yes. And um, and I see uh, I see quite a bit of domestic violence from women in uh, against military guys too, and um, again it's something that that a woman can really weaponize a false accusation uh, and destroy a man, and then the whole then the system becomes part like it's an extension of their arm. Um, to be able to abuse somebody who's trying to get away from them. And it's devastating. It is. It can be very... I mean, there are a lot of times where we've seen where the spouse would call in to the precinct and say, well, my husband is assigned there and he beat me up. Next thing you know, they're being pulled in and they have to get their delegate and then go through the whole rigmarole. So it's not just the military, it's also first responders, or it's just any man. They could lose their job, their careers, their public reputation. They can lose uh, family relationships and friendships uh, over these false accusations. Yeah, and it takes a second to give, to you know, verbalize a false accusation, and it takes extreme resources to be able to um, prove that you didn't do something. Very hard to prove a negative. It is. It is very, very hard. Well, your book turns around and gives you 
the examples of it and tells you what to look out for. But you also give ways in which to get themselves out. You do basically have a self-help if they find themselves in this situation. And in some of the people that recommended your book, I saw that it's like this is a gift every dad should give their son because some of them are actually tracing back the abuse from their their relatives and then what goes down to their children. Yeah, and I think that um, it's it's really important to educate young men so that they know what to look out for. It's it's setting them up this, that the culture is saying uh, this doesn't happen to men. Just then they're blindsided. They don't they don't know to look for the red flags. And so one of my hopes is that actually this is a mechanism. The book is a mechanism for educating men about. Yeah, this this can happen to you. Walk away if you see you know if you see this because um, it can get much worse. Now you've got an excellent website, and yes, I did my research. I went up there and I was poking around, and it actually is your name, Anne A N N Silvers S I L V E R S. I'm glad you spell your first name the same way I do, clean and neat. <laughs> AnnSilvers dot com. <laughs> I always tease people because I've, I've had other p- girls named uh, Anne Marie, and it's like they say Anne Marie. I'm like I turn my head. It's like no, no, the other Anne Marie, <laughs> the one that spells her name wrong. <laughs> uh, I usually say I usually of, say Anne. Yeah, I, I usually say Anne without an e. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, clean and neat. Uh, but you've got a lot of other self-help books, uh, not just on the abuse of men by women, but for a lot of other things, anxiety, uh, communication skills. Uh, I like that little app that you have. Uh, you're offering people 101 uh, facial things, So, especially after everyone's been wearing the masks and kids just don't understand uh, facial expressions, and they're being socially stunted. They don't, they're not understanding because they can't see a person's face. Um, there's a lot of different lot of cards and books and, and recordings that they can get on your website, correct? Yes, yes. And um, I have 15 books on Amazon. Um, so like you said, anxiety, communication skills, emotion skills. And um, if you go to my website and you put in the search Amazon books, then you'll come up with a list of that, a post that lists those 15. And, yeah, poke around. There's all kinds of things there that I've developed over the years of helping people. I feel like I've got very um, – I like to turn things into something easily graspable. So take something like emotions mm-hmm. that's really hard to understand and just ex- uh, explain it in a way that somebody can go, oh, okay, now I get it. Well, you also have a blog on there in which you write extensively about the uh, death trial. Um, I'm going to have to have you come back on at a later date, and we can also go over a whole lot of other stuff that you're doing on this wonderful website that would help so many people. Now, um, I've heard about self-hypnosis, and Mm -hmm. how does that work, and what does it help? So basically all hypnosis is uh, can be – called self-hypnosis even when a hypnotherapist is there um, with you in person. Um, Hypnosis is just a great way to get to the subconscious where a lot of of what we do is controlled by our subconscious. So if we're trying to break a habit and we're 
we've got all these conscious goals and we can't figure out why can't I do this. Um, it could be that the subconscious needs to be engaged more in, in assisting you. And hypnosis helps you do that. That's why hypnosis is powerful, incredibly powerful for things like quitting smoking and, and um, changing habits. Um, and then it can be used for, it's great for relaxation. Um, uh, my hypnosis recordings are all organized so that you can listen to them anytime you have a half an hour to relax or as you're going to sleep. And most people listen to them as they're going to sleep. It helps you get to sleep. You know, it helps you calm that busy mind that can keep you awake. And, and it helps you get a more refreshing sleep. I've had people listen to them out loud when they go to sleep, like most people put an earbud in or something, right, to listen to it because they have a partner who maybe doesn't want to hear it. But I had, <laughs> I've had several people who listened to it out loud and told me not only did they sleep better, but their dogs slept better. So I think that's a big <laughs> Does it work with cats? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I just haven't heard. Because <laughs> um, so, I've got two females that when they get out of my bed, they go after each other. It's like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not the boxing match you guys you know yeah yeah for so for 10 bucks it might be worth a try <laughs> yeah and, and no, so it, it can help with all kinds of things yeah so basically people can self-hypnosis themselves they don't need another person there to watch over them but this is something that is so well, easy that they just don't need someone to pull them out of this Oh, right, because, well, they do, they do in a way in that, so like when it's a recording, I talk the person through, there's about five minutes at the beginning of my recordings, it's about getting, helping the person relax. And then there's a, you know, middle part that is about um, whatever the, per, the goals are of that particular hypnosis. So if it's quitting smoking, then the middle part's all about helping that person quit smoking. If it's about um, one of them I call release and refresh, and it's just a way to let go of the emotions that weigh you down and keep you stuck. Uh, so you can think of it as an emotional detox. And so the, the middle mm. part is assisting you through that in a very gentle way. Um, and then the, then the end part, a you know, little bit at the end, where I say, so if you – if you're, you know, it's convenient to be going to sleep, then you'll just fall into a deeper sleep. If you want to come back to full awareness, and then I talk you through, I'm going to count from one to five, and you know, there's steps to it, and then they come back out to full awareness. So, yeah, it's, it's assisted. The recording mm-hmm. uh, assists you. Now, yeah. do you have anything that would help with uh, primary caregivers? For example, and I'm the perfect example of this one because when my husband took ill, and he had been ill for a long time, uh, mm-hmm. on a wheelchair and then a walker, uh, at the same time, my mother had a stroke, and I had to go bring her to live with me. So I had dueling walkers and nurses and everything. People like me that have 24-7 as a caregiver to help them relax and release some of that stress of being under that type of a pressure. Yes. So I would recommend that release and refresh hypnosis recording. Um, It can just help you let go of the emotional weight that you're carrying around, the emotional baggage, Um, because that is a 
there's a lot of pain points in in and stressors in caregiving, and it can be mm-hmm. you can feel very alone and um, overwhelmed. And you know, I have some I have some workbook journals. Uh, that could be helpful, but I don't know if you've got the time. <laughs> um, so there's there's one called Learn, Let Go, Lighten Up that helps you process. So you're acknowledging for yourself the challenges that you're going through, and that can be very powerful. Um, so there's that one, and then there's an anxiety workbook I call Becoming Calm that is step-by-step, and you can just spend – five minutes a day on it even and uh, get some value there. And do you work also with people that suffer from PTSD? Uh, yes. Um, mostly from the, because there's a lot of anxiety involved and, and anxiety is one of my specialties. I dealt with anxiety myself. Uh, I was raised by two alcoholics. Hard to come out of that without having anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so I dealt with it for a long time. I, I'm somebody who became a counselor later in life. And um, so I'd already been dealing with my anxiety for a long time before I was a counselor. And then it has very much helped me. I, I, don't, I don't have much of it at all anymore because I've learned so much about how to process the root causes, mitigate it when it happened. And I and I even use food, food and supplements to um, reduce the anxiety. Um, and I've written about that as well. So I think a lot of people who have anxiety appreciate that I'm coming from a place of knowing what it feels like. And I think mm-hmm. that that does um, help me be able to point out to people what can help them. Yeah. You know, because... Uh... It took me a while before I even realized that I had it, but again, bless my late husband, he would walk in a room quietly, and I would turn around, i just jump. And I don't like having someone walk up behind me without my knowing they're there, you know. <laughs> so he, he would turn around and knock on the door frame just to let me know he was approaching. But, you know, people that have PTSD, many don't even realize it. Until you start explaining, hey, this is what you're doing, and it's probably because of, I mean, for me, certain noises, certain movements just bring back those flashes. You know what I mean? And just, yeah. yeah. I have to walk myself yeah. through it and then just say, okay, fine, just, that's all right, you're okay. <laughs> yeah. And but one the, of my hypnosis is, is um, uh, I call Discover Calm, and it's, for, it's specifically for anxiety. And it, it helps you learn five relaxation skills to use when you become anxious. Um, I talk about those in the workbook, Becoming Calm, as well. Well, Anne, you've got an excellent website and a great book, and I do promise to finish reading the whole entire thing, and we're going to have to have you back on and uh, see where we can help uh, other individuals uh, survive their domestic violent relationship or recognize when they're in it and how to get out of it. Your website is your name, com, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thanks for having well, me. Well, there on. is a link up. It's our pleasure. There's a link up on the show page to the Amazons where they can go and buy the book. Um, 
where so many people listen to the archives, and you know they love to hit the archives, uh, they can click on it while they listen to the interview and get your book. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. All right. Hey, really enjoyed it's our you. pleasure. Okay. Bye to both of you. Okay. All right. Take care. All right, Ann Silvers, check her out. Her website, annsilvers.com, and her book up on Amazon, Abuse by Women of Men. All right, Curtis, we're waiting for now for Gator to call in, correct? Yep, he'll be calling in. But that was very informative, very enlightening, this last session we had. It was almost therapeutic. like I said, most of the time when we are called to a domestic violence situation, nine times out of ten, it is a woman being abused by a man or a child by a step-parent or something like that. Um, But you never get to see the other side, um, where it's the actual men being abused, because they just do not um, talk about it. So let's welcome our latest victim in on the show. I want to welcome back to the show once again, uh, Gator Delos, who is the sheriff out of Putnam County, Florida. Good afternoon, Gator. How are you today? Hey, Annie. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh, just hunky-dory. I'm just having yeah. one of those days where nothing seems to go right, <laughs> but that's all right. It's usually <laughs> hey, a Friday Gator. show. We seem to be having those more often than not here lately. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. You know, I, I made the grade. I have been officially banned from YouTube. <laughs> so, oh, outstanding. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, join the rest yeah. of us. <laughs> that's, a, that's a rather significant accomplishment. Yeah, I am so proud of that. And I'm looking for my notes, and I know I put everything together. See that? I, I can't even find. Oh, there we are. There we are. All right. Um, there's several different things I wanted to go over you with. And, you know, um, this recent spat of shootings, and they call it gun violence. And I say it's impossible for a gun to commit violence. It's the person behind the weapon that commits the you violence. Know, I'm so glad you said that. You're absolutely right, Annie. Uh, you know, a gun is an inanimate object. Unless you put it in the hands of someone who uh, who has some nefarious intent, that gun will sit there from now until time immemorial and never hurt anyone. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't go up. It doesn't earn a paycheck. You put it on the table. It doesn't get legs and make itself breakfast or go to visit the neighbor. It just sits exactly where you left it. That's right. That person, the wrong person that picks it up, then you got a problem. Amen. This always, this drives me crazy because now they're talking about, um, going after and creating either an executive order or legislation to go after high-capacity rams. Now, that, if anything wants to drive me up the wall, where the uninformed start talking in these terms, it's scary. Run for the hills. They did to, that to us in New York <clears throat> City. The bad guys had high-capacity rams because they're bad guys. They're not going to follow the law, and they're not going to purchase them legally. Uh, but then those of us out there on patrol were limited to only seven shots. You either had your six-shot pea shooter or you had your, your nine mil automatic and limited to only seven rounds in the weapon. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely not. And, you know, speaking of nine millimeter, I, I just saw just a couple of days ago where uh, 
Joe Biden is talking about banning 9mm rounds, the most common handgun probably in the United States, probably in the world for that matter. Most widely when used in law enforcement, too. Absolutely. So, Certainly what, you, what, what we carry here. What are we going to do, take out a slingshot and, and shoot peas at them? You know, it drives me insane. You you talk about the uh, the gun control laws in New York, and it's the same scenario in California. Um, you know, most law-abiding citizens are gonna are gonna comply and and do what the law says. But it's the the common criminal that you have to worry about. They're the ones that we're actually empowering when we pass these laws, where we can't actually defend ourselves from them. You know, and the FBI came out with a recent report, um, active shooter incident report in the United States, uh, 2021. And it said there were 61 active shooter incidents last year. Uh, All but one killers were male, ranging in the age from 12 to 67. All right. And um, first responders uh, helped a lot. I'm looking for the stats on this one. Here we go. According to the FBI, uh, four of the perpetrators were killed by armed citizens. Thirty of these thugs were apprehended by law enforcement. Fourteen were killed by police officers. One was killed in a vehicle accident. Eleven others committed suicide. And as of today, only one remains at large. So good guys with guns work. You know, you're exactly right, Annie, and that's that's where I was headed next with the conversation is the fact of the matter is uh, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to put a good guy with a gun in front of him, period. I say him, him, her, whomever it may be that has the gun. Uh, we recognize that here in Putnam County, and, you know, Putnam County is not unlike the, uh, the Uvalde School District. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what size uh, the Uvalde School District is, but I think it runs into portions of uh, a couple of counties in, in that uh, region of Texas, uh, and I, I think it's a little over a thousand square miles, very rural from what I understand. Um, not unlike where uh, you know where we are here in Putnam County, we're you know we cover 827 square miles, uh, serve a population of roughly 75,000, and we're you know we're we're spread thin. So years ago, after the uh, the shooting in Parkland um, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. We acted very quickly. We realized that we didn't have time to wait on Washington, D.C. or on Tallahassee, and I got with the superintendent, and we immediately started hammering out a plan to put guns in the hands of our educators because we know that seconds count in these types of uh, scenarios when you've got an active shooter. Our goal is to stop the shooting at whatever cost. We want to stop the shooting, stop the killing, stop the bleeding. Um, first and foremost, that's our goal, and I think that's, frankly, really where uh, the Uvalde School District Police Department really, really fell on their face here with this uh, this most recent shooting. I, I can't even imagine a situation where I would listen to the boss tell me to sit in a hallway for over an hour while you could hear the rounds going off. You can Absolutely hear the screams, not. I'm sure. Yes, so, yes parents begging them to break the windows to go to get at the shooter to let them get the kids out of the room and um what's so heart-wrenching is the disconnect between the 911 operators 
and communication with uh, the boots on the ground at the time. There was a, a complete lack, of course, communication. So these kids and everyone else that was dialing 911, every last one that dialed 911 did not make it out of there. Absolutely this, not. There's got to be criminal accountability on this. I agree. So, you know, you talk about that breakdown of communications. Uh, you know, one of the lessons learned from the Parkland shooting was uh, a lack of interoperability between the agencies. Um, thankfully, we've got a, a school district here um, that is cognizant of the fact that school districts are probably, uh, you know, save a few, uh, probably ill-equipped to run their own police department. So they contract with us to provide youth resource deputies in all of our schools. Uh, but in addition to that, just as an extra added layer of security, we actually, like I said, put uh, put guns in the hands of teachers. But getting back to what we were talking about with this this breakdown of communication, um, you know, it's clearly evident that uh, that there's some of that going on here. We, although we're a, a rural county and somewhat fiscally constrained, we actually have a consolidated communication center. So when you call 911 your call is routed to the sheriff's office, and I call it one-stop shopping for public safety. If you need an ambulance, if you need the police, um, you, you know, whatever type of emergency, we are equipped to handle that, and we handle all those communications for any incident. Um, so it's all filtered through one collective call center and doesn't get lost in translation. You're not having to establish... Uh, you know, patches on radio frequencies and connections from one call center to the next and try and relay information. It just becomes uh, immanageable with a, you know, a, a situation like was in uh, Uvalde. As it was evolving, it became so complex and protracted so quickly that uh, they didn't have the ability to uh, communicate and disseminate information effectively. And then compound that with you've got a, a police agency that covers an area that spans two counties. I don't know how far into each it reaches, but I think there's a total of six law enforcement officers that they have, including the chief. Gator. Hey, Curtis. You know, how's it going? Hey, Great. you know that it's, it's human nature to run away from danger um, unless you train professionally to run towards it, but like firemen, police, most police, but especially the military um, and our special forces. Even even the dogs that go with our special forces are trained to, to, to be comfortable working around live fire. I was just curious if, if in Putnam County, our, our officers trained um, where there's like real life, you know, fire, you know, gunfire and stuff like that so they could get used to that and, and, and be comfortable, more comfortable running towards, you know, that kind of danger versus um, running away or waiting for backup all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So our, uh, you know, our protocol here, Curtis, is anytime we have uh, any type of an incident at school, we don't wait for backup to get there. Um, that was a lesson that we learned from Columbine years and years ago. Um Immediately at uh, at the first indication that there is someone who is harming our children, um, we are trained to go in and actively engage that shooter, that person that's got the gun, got the knife, whatever it may be, and to take them out. 
Uh, I can promise you if you come to a school in Putnam County and you try and harm some of our kids, it'll be the last thing you ever do, whether it's one of us or one of our school guardians that we have. Um, but back to that training question that you asked, yes, we do. We do that on a routine basis uh, where we do scenario-based training not only with our deputies but also with our, uh, our school guardians who are specially selected members of uh, the school district staff um, that are armed and, and, and carry guns uh, concealed. Um, I would venture to say that, uh, at least in my opinion, um, our guardians here are better equipped to handle an active shooter scenario on a school campus than the average person who graduates fresh out of the law enforcement academy and comes to work at a criminal justice agency somewhere. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. Because I know I know the sheriff here in my local county. He knows me pretty well. And one of the first things he did after Uvalde is immediately uh, reassure the public with the school superintendent working in tandem. Uh, to say these are the things we have in place. We're going over everything just to make sure that we have no problems and so forth. Um, it's very important for that. But you have some of these areas where they are so liberal, um, they'd rather have that touchy-feely approach rather than being able to meet violence head-on with violence and take the bad guy out before any more damage can be done. Absolutely. Uh, any, uh, I agree with you. And, you, you know, if you were to drive into Putnam County and drive up to any one of our schools, uh, something that you cannot ignore is a sign on the front door or somewhere near those entrances as you're coming into the school. That, and, I, and I can't remember the exact verbiage, so don't quote me on it, but it says something along the lines of, we have staff members who are armed and will stop at nothing to protect our students. Good. Nice. Absolutely nice. Not only that, it keep it warns the, the potential perpetrator for, to stay away, but it also gives comfort to the family and the children attending that school that someone is there to protect them. And, you know, we had school resource officers, and for whatever reason that person could not be there for that day, one of us would then, you know, dispatched to fill in. But at all times there was an armed officer. Uh, whether it's a school uh, a school officer or one of us, um, but th- th- these things aren't always taken into consideration. Uh, you know, additional things that a lot of these schools could do, such as uh, uh, oh God, just had uh, body scans. Um, there's also different detectors that they can put into the ceiling to detect the presence of gunpowder or anything like that, or or of anything else. There's also lockdowns where, you know, controlling gates can drop down in place and lock the perpetrator in a single area. Uh, Ballistic whiteboards. There are so many other things to do defensively in these schools that uh, obviously were not being done in Uvalde. Uh, Clearly. Uh, You know, one of the things that uh, that we're actually actively engaged in right now is there are some manufacturers who have created a, a fairly thick, uh, film that goes on windows, and it can be clear, it can be opaque, it can be tinted, um, but it's actually bullet resistant. And we've seen some of the testing that's done with this stuff, and it's it's really impressive. So you know, if yeah. you can early, if you can identify early on that there is uh, an active assailant on a school campus, you can get everyone locked down, and you have some of these safety measures like we're talking about the you know the ballistic resistant whiteboards. 
um, this film that goes up on the windows, you uh, you confer a, a much greater level of protection on on our children, and that's that's what it's all about. You know, they're they're the future of our country, um, but you know, even even above and beyond all that, I think that there has been uh, a substantial erosion of our uh, morals and values in this country over the last 10 to 15 years um, that I personally think attributes to uh, to some of this violence. Well, there is an increase in mental illness in our youth. I mean, when you have a child as young as five and six committing suicide, there's a lot of power to what you just said. There is no child that young that should think suicidal. And we I mean, have indoctrination these kids. Six years old. Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea what suicide was at six years old. They didn't have any idea what sex is, but now they're being told at the age of five and six, well, you may not be a girl, you might be a boy. That's not what the schools are there for. They're there to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. The skills for them to become a, a contributing member of your society, your community, to be someone who is able to go out and get a job doesn't necessarily mean go on to college, but to have a good, successful, and full life, not this this mind-bending dystopia that they're trying to sell these kids. Well, I am proud to say in Florida that uh, we've got a great governor in Ron DeSantis, and as part of this, uh, this last legislative session, they actually passed a bill which he signed that does not allow them to engage in any type of sex ed with children uh, until after they leave the third grade. So there is no mention of sex, sexuality, body parts, or any of that in, in a school setting until after you're out of the third grade now. Well, it should be even later than that, but that's the foot in the door. Legislation can be, <laughs> legislation sure. can be amended. Absolutely. But the main thing was the foot in the door. People don't understand that. If they say, well, it doesn't go far enough, that's what amendments are for. That's right. That's uh, but right. One, one of the things that, that really drives me crazy is that right after Uvalde ha- occurred, um, California is passed a bill saying that you can't report student threats. That makes absolutely no sense. You that, want to stop a shooting. You want to prevent the shootings, so you actually take away the one tool that educators, parents, or even the kid in the classroom can do to help protect everyone. Sure. So you know that, that's uh, that's completely counterintuitive to what we're trying to accomplish here. We want people to be forthcoming with information. We want them to share it with us. We want them to share it with us early, and we want to provide a means for them to remain anonymous if they so choose. One of the things that came out of the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission from uh, 2018, and and the commission continues to meet um, to provide uh, additional insight into security measures, was uh, an online platform um, with an app called Fortify Florida where you can go in and anonymously report threats. And, yes, we get some garbage on there. Um, You know, we get uh, occasionally uh, complaints that, you know, so-and-so's in the bathroom smoking or I saw this person kissing somebody or just some random made-up garbage. 
Um, but we have gotten some credible threats in on that uh, on that platform, and it's it's been largely very effective for us. Um, so the you know the notion that, that California has passed legislation that prevents people from uh, from reporting threats of violence just is is mind boggling to me. Did we just lose? Well, data? I guess if it, I guess I if it wasn't just... reported to them, it doesn't happen. Yeah, the, the bill, the actual Senate bill that passed would allow schools not to report threats or attacks against employees or officials to law enforcement. So even if someone is actually criminally attacked, it allows the school to not report it to law enforcement. It, I'm sorry, wait a minute. A crime just occurred. Right? Absolutely. Just occurred. Oh my gosh, so, yes. <laughs> so how are you supposed to do your job? I can't. I can't even wrap my mind around that. You know, in Florida, there are uh, mandatory reporting um, categories where, if you know, if a crime occurs and it, it falls into one of these categories, the district is uh, is compelled to report it to law enforcement. And if they don't, then there is uh, civil and and criminal sanctions that uh, that can be taken against them uh, as a as a district and also individually. Now, as if I remember Parkland correctly, the individual that was the perpetrator had a history of criminal behavior, but was never criminally held liable, or if he was, it was just a basic slap on the wrist. So what would be your solution on that, or was there anything done about that? Well, I think part of the problem with uh, with Parkland, specifically with regard to Nick Cruz, is everyone had all this intelligence about him. The FBI did. Local law enforcement had some. They'd had several encounters with him, but there was no consolidation of this information. Um, it was, you know, essentially the left hand did not know what the right one was, or know what the right one was doing. Um, and, you know, they, they had placed all this information in silos and just wanted to keep it all to themselves. And that was one of the things that came out of the, uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission was there has got to be better sharing of information. So there are systems in place now to where, um, you know, if a, if a child has an interaction with law enforcement and it meets a certain criteria, um, it's compulsory. It gets shared with local law enforcement. It gets shared with the FBI. And there are checks and balances in there to ensure that, uh, that folks are following up on these, these threats appropriately and, and taking them seriously like they should be. Well, you know, there's, there's so much more to talk about with Uvalde, but as the investigation comes out, you know, it's going to be coming out in dribs and drabs. But another part was the question about whether or not a door was properly locked or not. And I do know um, there are systems in place that if you're using a CCR TV and a monitoring board, you can determine which doors are unlocked and locked from a central console. So I'm sure. wondering why something like that wasn't even installed, uh, because obviously I'm, I'm wondering whether or not this guy did something to that lock the day before and made sure it would not lock? You know, that's entirely possible, and I, I agree with you, Annie. We're, we're going to get information, just little uh, little tidbits and nuggets at a time, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I guess we really won't know the answer to some of those questions until, 
months, perhaps maybe even years later, uh, I can tell you that I've had an opportunity um, to spend some time with uh, members from the Texas Department of Public Safety, and I have the utmost faith in their ability to really drill down into this issue and to um, to find all the facts and then aggregate them all together so that we have a comprehensive view of what happened, much like we did here in uh, in Florida when we had the, the Parkland shooting back in 2018. Um, Texas Department of Public Safety has uh, arguably some of the best investigators in uh, in the country um, that I would put up against any of ours. Um, and you know the the beauty of having that uh, that independent investigation that they're doing is um, there's it it, it avoids any appearance of uh, of impropriety or favoritism. Um, they're there strictly to uh, to identify what the facts are surrounding this shooting and compile them all together, um, without uh, you know without necessarily pointing fingers at uh, other agencies, um, and certainly there's uh, there's a fair amount of that that uh, that is to go around as well. Um, I wonder at what point they will look at actually prosecuting some of these individuals. Uh, who were responsible for some of these decisions that were made. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I heard that they were sitting there, first it was 40 minutes, then this guy had a free-for-all for over 80 minutes. No, I'm sorry. And it, it, that's not the way you roll. You and I know that. You don't roll Absolutely. that way. I mean, Absolutely. Push, push the boss aside and say, I'm going in. You want to discipline me later on? I'm going in because I'm saving lives. Um I want to change a little bit now because we're we're under the threat of Title 42 being completely rolled back, and I know that uh, you guys brace for the influx of illegals. Uh, as a matter of fact, South Carolina is one of the ones that saw a huge, huge rise. You would not think South Carolina being a target of illegal aliens. I mean, they're given the bus ticket and they're free ride. But along with this influx of illegals, uh, we see a huge influx of fentanyl. And this is something else that just burns me. Uh, they keep on calling it a drug overdose. If the person is taking something with fentanyl in it and does not know fentanyl is in it, that is not a drug overdose. That's, That's a homicide. That's isn't it? That's yes, a homicide. A That's a murder all day long. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've got some uh, some personal experience with this, Annie, because it was just last year I had an opportunity to uh, to visit the border down in McAllen, Texas, with uh, Representative Kat Kamek and her team, as well as uh, several other sheriffs and law enforcement officers from across the country, and I was appalled whenever I was down there. Uh, you know, you've got uh, tens of thousands of people coming across the border every day. The cartels own every bit of the property on the Mexican side, and they charge a premium for everyone that they bring across. They are making billions of dollars a year getting rich off of these individuals. And I'm telling you, it was the absolute most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. We were out with Border Patrol agents one night at the border at a portion of the wall that was completed. There was a young girl who approached us, and through this wall came a little tiny hand holding a water bottle. She didn't have a voice. And I asked the Border Patrol agent, I said, why can't she talk? And he said, listen, these young girls are raped and sodomized an average of two to 
three times a night on their trip up from wherever they come from, whether it's Guatemala or somewhere down in South America or in Mexico. Um, and he said they scream to the point that they they lose their ability to uh, to vocalize. Um, and I was I was devastated when I found out about it. It was it was the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, Gator, hang on the line here because we've got our, our other guest coming in, uh, Chief Daniel V. Garcia. He was a former police uh, chief in backwards, former chief of police over in Phoenix, Arizona. Good afternoon, Chief uh, Garcia. Good afternoon. Nice to be on your show. Yeah, well, you're lucky. you got three cops in a row here. we got uh, Sheriff Gator Deloche, you, and I'm retired NYPD. <laughs> Boy, awesome. we can have a field day here. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad to be I, I know both of you, actually. I've, I've, I've followed both your careers. Oh, really? I'm surprised. Yes, I know. <laughs> no, absolutely. I know, I know both of you. Uh, I'm honored. Now I'm now I'm actually blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting that reaction today, but let's let's go on. <laughs> well, we were talking about the influx of illegal aliens, and along with it, the human trafficking and the fentanyl. And uh, you've had 37 years' experience uh, in Phoenix in your career. Uh, uh, what are you, have you been seeing over there in Arizona? Well, it's everything that happens in Arizona, as far as crime increases, both in violent crime and murder, it's all associated with narcotics. I mean, narcotics is the 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 uh, the substance that's coming in, the, the the prohibited narcotic that's coming in, that's driving everything in crime related to the city of Phoenix and really to Arizona as a whole, and really across the country because the narcotics come in through Arizona and through Texas. And they're moved across the United States into Chicago, New York, and other areas, unfortunately. Yeah, and then Phoenix is a major uh, hub, you know, so it's easy to fly in, you know, buses, whatever. Uh, it is easy to spread it out uh, as it is Chicago, New York, D.C. You know, these major hubs become, you know, the, the connecting points, Atlanta. Um, but, you know, we see an increase in crime but we don't see an increase in our law enforcement, not law enforcement, I should say, our legislators to actively help you have the tools you need to do your job. Well, and, and you're absolutely uh, you right. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. Unfortunately, what we see in relation to police budgets is what did we give them last year, and let's just give them that again, or let's reduce their budget due to defunding of the police. And what do you get on your end, Gator? I gather from DeSantis you get a heck of a lot more support. You know, Chief, I'll tell you, uh, my, my heart goes out to you, um, but I'll tell you, we're, uh, we're in a much better position here in Florida. I was just talking with Annie and Curtis a few minutes ago about our great governor, Ron DeSantis. Absolutely. Um, he has uh, actually been, uh, in my opinion, uh, an absolute godsend for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annie and I were talking a few minutes ago. Putnam County is a, a fiscally constrained county, one of uh, 28 out of 67 counties in Florida. And the governor actually, this legislative session, went to the uh, went to the House and to the Senate and said, "Look, we've got to take care of these guys. They don't have the means to be able to uh, do it in their county budgets." And he actually has 15 million dollars in the budget recurring every year. 
that is designated to go to fiscally constrained counties just like mine so that we can supplement our deputies' pay. Uh, we get an additional uh, just over a million dollars every year from, uh, from the legislature and the governor to support us in our endeavors um, so that we can hire and retain good qualified law enforcement officers. And then, you know, also there was some additional legislation that was passed in that bill where um, the governor has empowered us to be able to provide significant recruiting bonuses and money to uh, help individuals relocate from places like New York City and, and California where the police are just vilified. Wow. That, that's, that, that's, that's incredible, and that's, it's awesome to hear. And, and, yes, I know the work of your governor. He's done a tremendous job. And, you know, and, and really I've got I've to throw some kudos to our governor. You know, Greg Abbott has done a great job in, in taking on the fight in the border literally all by himself because uh, we all know he's, he's not getting any support from the Biden administration. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. Now, you know, um, Chief, you are now working with K-West, which uh, has different tools, technological tools uh, to help in policing, but as well as help in the private sector. Now, I have to admit some some ignorance to a lot of this stuff because I retired back in 96, so I'm a little Mm -hmm. old school. (laughs) I still got my revolvers. Oh, wow. Yeah, but here's, you know, and and thank you for bringing up Quest. Quest is, and it's actually K-W-E-S-S-T. People can see our our technology in Quest.com. But but let me tell you, uh, I'm really excited about having come on with Quest as a spokesperson for critical incident management and public safety. Uh, I got to tell you, both of you are going to relate to this. Their technology is the technology that when we were sitting at home relaxing and the nightly news came on and they showed some kind of military operation and we were pointing at the TV going, why don't we have that technology? Why doesn't law enforcement have that? Sure. And what they provide, what they provide is a tactical awareness and situational control technology. And, and I'll break that down to you to mean that it's real life time videos being brought down all the way to the officer's camera that he's holding his hand, all the way up to the headquarters of the command post and everybody in between, they can see what each other is seeing. It's digital. Wow. It's, dat- it's database. It's modulable. It's portable. It's scalable. It's, it's secure. And it's interoperational. Outstanding. Now, I imagine mean, if they had that at Uvalde. Yeah, you're absolutely. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right about that. It would have made a tremendous difference. I mean, I think we all know, based on our histories on policing, the first thing that I'm that I, I see you evolved in, I'm I'm 100% sure. I know now. I've confirmed it. Is that the interoperability between radios wasn't there to begin with? That's right, Annie. And I just talked about that uh, 10, 15 minutes ago. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And that's the most basic thing we need in, uh, in communications for policing, and we know that failed already. Sure, no Well, doubt. that was one of the first things uh, New York City learned when the World Trade Center was bombed back in 93. I remember that Absolutely. day very vividly because uh, uh, 
at that point, I was one of the ones waiting for shoulder surgery, so they had me on the switchboard that day. But I handled the calls of people coming in, and we had a problem with NYPD communicating with FD, communicating with the bomb squad, communicating with all the people that were converging. And that was one thing we learned that day is to centralize everything and then allow the 911 dispatcher to, to go, all right, this has to go to FD, this has to go to EMS, this has to go to NYPD, this has to go to state. So you had a one-stop well, shop. Well, and, and let me ask you, and, you know, one of the things I was on, on television yesterday talking about Uvalde as well, and one of the questions they asked me was about the, uh, the 911 calls that we're hearing now were not given to the incident commander. And I got to tell you, how a school police chief became an incident commander with only five people in his resources, I don't understand that at all. But that's another topic. But let me say this. In most major cities, when an incident of this caliber happens, we take three or four dispatchers and we assign them to the critical incident. We're going to sign them. We may mm-hmm. sign one to the command post to ensure that that communication is brought down all the way to the officers about to go in. And that information is broadcast in the air. A city like the size of Uvalde, I got to tell you, it's 14,000 in population. They must have been inundated with, with 911 calls coming in. Chief yes, Deloach, uh, Chief Garcia, I got a question. Yes. With the, the current bad publicity about what's just happened in these mass shootings, along with the um, the war on law enforcement and this push to defund law enforcement, what is recruitment like? I mean, are you guys having uh, problems recruiting? Well, you know, uh, I, I left Phoenix in 2012, but, but, but my counterparts are still there, and I've got so, connections with Dallas as well. I was assistant chief there for, for uh, actually 34 years in Dallas and three in Phoenix. But, but i got to tell you, I, I, I can answer that question. Officers are leaving in droves. They can't get out of policing fast enough. I, I can tell you this. Uh, give you an example of, uh, of, a, of a decision that's uh, haunted the city of Phoenix. The city of Phoenix stopped hiring police officers in 2010, not even attrition. Wow. Because they, because they wanted to, to impact the budget. Well, they did, but at, at the expense of law enforcement. And even today, here's the city of 1.7 million. They're 2,600 strong. And I say that in quotation marks. That department used to be 3,600 officers, 3,400 officers. So they can't they can recruit classes fast enough. And, and, I, and, and uh, I think you're seeing that all across the nation. And it is because of all this. The social media has just attacked the police so hard that, I mean, honestly, the question is, who wants to be a cop nowadays? You've got to have the heart to do it. And it's certainly not for the money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Gator, of course, you, you've been guys who've been recruiting a lot of us out of NYPD down there. And uh, i got to admit, when we started looking for a place to move uh, south of New York, uh, one of the places we did stop through was uh, in Florida. And uh, someone found out that I was retired. And I said, well, we'll hire you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I paid my dues. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, come one, come all. We're uh, we're happy to take anyone we can. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you that uh, on the law enforcement side of the house, we're actually completely full right now. In fact, we've hired one over our allocation. Oh, oh wow. Um, 
it's a it's a it's a great problem to have to be honest with you. Um, well, what are you doing right? What are you well, guys doing right? You, I think okay. it's a, it's a culmination of things. We've got uh, the support of our uh, our legislature, um, the support of our governor, okay. and the support of our wow. communities. And I, I had an opportunity to speak in an academy graduation a couple of months ago, and I told them, you know, in spite of how bad things look nationally, um, it's a terrible time to start a career in law enforcement yeah. anywhere but Florida. And if you happen to be in Florida and you're fortunate enough to be a cop here, it's a great time to start a second career or to start a brand new career. Wow. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Now, what are some of the other things that K-West offers to law enforcement? Because I looked at some of the toys on your website, and, uh, I mean, do you need a computer degree to handle some of these things? Well, let me tell you something. The technology piece is not my strong point. I'm not there for that. I can tell you that. But I can talk about the, the, the product. The product I was talking a little bit earlier was the digitization piece of our technology. And, and the wonderful thing about it is, is that you don't have to go out and buy new equipment. We, we are committed to making what we have, our equipment in relation to digital technology, compatible to what you have. And we've been very successful with that. Uh, but the other tools that we have is the para-ops. And uh, a para-ops, we're hoping to get that into not only for personal, personal defense to, to the civilian population, but we do want to get it into the hands of security officers and even public safety. It's a, it's a launcher. It's a non-lethal device. It's a launcher that shoots out an inert powdered projectile. It comes in a single-shot model. It comes in a five-shot model. The five-shot can actually disperse smoke, dispersed gas, pepper. It's, in lessons, it's, it's, it's a pepper ball, but again, it's, we think it's, it's a much better product than what we've seen in the past. Um, it's, uh, we stand by the fact that it's non-lethal. And when you can stand on that fact, that's pretty impressive. Most, uh, most, most devices, that, like, like some competitors, they'll, they'll call it less lethal, but ours is non-lethal. And we kind of stand behind that. <clears throat> How would that work like in a rural area? Like, what, How does that work like in a rural area uh, where uh, Sheriff uh, Deloche is? No, I, I think it would work in any setting, quite frankly. Again, we actually want to have the para-ops in the hands of, of private citizens to protect themselves. So, again, I don't think it's, it's a matter of, of where you live. I think it's, it's a good option for personal protection. Uh, I'll tell you what it looks like. It almost – you can, it can look like a flashlight, or you can manipulate it and break it down to look like an actual gun, of course, but it's not a gun, and, but it shoots these uh, projectiles. And, um, and, and, and to me, again, not only does it have that, that technology in relation to the inert powder that disintegrates once it makes contact, uh, and, and to be blunt, again, it hurts when you get hit by it. But, again, you can inflict pain, you can inflict smoke, you can inflict gas, or you can inflict pepper um, to use it in that, in that setting. We like to think of it as maybe an alternative to taser. Um, you know, you know I, I think that that's another tool in the toolbox that law enforcement can certainly use. And, uh, again, standing on the fact that it's not lethal. Well, how successful is it? Because I know there are some guys and gals, uh, because of their – 
whatever drug they're on or their physical build um, are resistant to tasers. Even though you tase them, they're still going to fight back. How much more yeah. successful are they percentage-wise over a taser? Well, you know, that that's a good question. And, and let me tell you, right now, there's some hurdles that we still have to cross. The first one is, is that we need to be um, certified by ATF. On the para-ops, we're still, we still haven't been certified as a non-firearms device. So as far as the, the, uh, the knockdown power, I can assure you it's going to knock you down. But again, uh, in comparison to taser, uh, that's an interesting question because I've, I've read some reports that tasers have about a 50% failure right now. And they've come off mm-hmm. with the power that they initially started off with uh, when they first came out of, the, uh, in, out of production into the hands of law enforcement. So, you know, I'd ask people to, to do their own research on that aspect as well. There's a lot of reports on TASER and their effectiveness today, and, uh, and there will be an ours once we get out into the mainstream product. Yeah, because satisfaction uh, uh, in my chat room is reminding people that uh, some people can die from a TASER, especially if you have a cardiac condition, and others have gotten TASED multiple times with absolutely no effect. And yes. uh, yeah. it's a 50-50 chance. It is a big gamble. Yes, it is. And, and that's the thing about it is um, when you have a product and, and you're putting that out in law enforcement, and, and again, there's, there's still some, some hurdles we need to cross to make sure that, that ours is, is, is going to be uh, what we want it to be. And the first one is ATF. We have to get past ATF. But we're very confident that this is going to be a good alternative for personal use, no doubt. Security use, security officer use, but I really believe it's going to have it's going to have a face in law enforcement. I really do. Now, Gator, you were mentioning that uh, after the uh, uh, Marjorie Delos shooting, that you guys had uh, consolidated your 911 system, you know, your critical incident management. Um, Chief, you your company also has a system. So I'm just wondering how similar the two of your systems are, a uh, Gator and uh, Chief, you want to take that Gator? If you can, yeah. Did I lose Gator again? I think we lost we lost the sheriff. Okay. Oh, well, that's important. Well, uh, well, let me just tell you that um, uh, again, our uh, our system is adaptable to to uh, what we walk into. In other words, what I'm saying is it's we want to know what what um, what baseline technologies you have and what you're using. Not only what radios are you carrying, but what's your baseline uh, GIS system that you're using for technology in your city. And we want to work around that issue, so you're not having to, to buy products to supplement our products because you know that's a that's a very slippery slope when you start getting into that. And uh, it just seems to me that, especially as, as a police chief, as long as I was, you'd have companies coming in. But you'd have to totally scrap everything you had and start start with what they wanted you to buy. So you actually go in and you say, right, fine, you've got this model, you have this type of a system. This is how we suggest you unite all your systems together so you really don't have to have a large outlay to have a no, that's correct. crisis management. Yes. Yes, ma'am, and that's right. Wow. And, and the thing about it is, again, we're very confident that our system – uh, can be compatible, uh, that we can make it compatible with what you have existing-wise. And then 
what I love about it, Annie, is the fact that it addresses critical incident management. Look, I don't care if you're talking about a, a active shooter or you're talking about a terrorist act. I don't care if you're talking a major fire. It, for us, it can be used by the police. It can be used by the fire department. It can be used by the Office of Emergency Management. And in big cities like New York, and, and, and certainly Dallas falls in that category as well, we understand that sometimes your Office of Emergency Management is part of that three-throng approach that you're going to attack a critical incident. Some cities don't use your emergency operations center. We understand that. Uh, there's, there's a number that don't. But I can tell you this, in, in a major city like New York, and, and please confirm that or, or tell me otherwise, Annie, but your Office of Emergency Management plays a role in critical incidents, but it doesn't dictate who fights the incident. The crisis dictates that. Right. Yes. Yeah. Very familiar with that one. Because um, uh, I live in a large county down here now in South Carolina, and it's spread mm-hmm. pretty, pretty large, um, which also encompasses several municipalities. Um, so their coordination is pretty good. I mean, they slip mm-hmm. up every now and then, but, but we also have, I'm sorry, three bases. We've got the Marine Corps Air Station, we've got Paris Island oh, wow. Recruit Depot, and we've got the Naval Hospital. So sometimes well, even needing to coordinate between the state and federal as well as the county can be well, quite challenging. And, and, and that, that's an interesting point, Annie, you brought there, because here's the thing. Our critical incident management system can be used for special events. It can be used to coordinate uh, locations that are uh, critical, critical infrastructure, like the Marine Corps base, like uh, uh, your electric company, your gas company. All these places that could be terrorist targets, our critical incident management system can be used because it employs drones, it employs helicopters, it can, it can, it can be used with, uh, with airplanes. Uh, and again, it, it can be used by the officers on the ground because whatever they're seeing, you're seeing, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Well, so you know, we've, we've all lived, yes, yeah, well, all of us live in the hurricane zone. So that does coordinate that, yeah, also through. That's a great example. It, well, that's right. A critical incident can yeah. be a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, any type of an incident can become, you know, a critical uh, management incident. Just depends upon that's how right. it escalates and how you can use the system then to de-escalate. And that's the main thing, to de-escalate, right? That's, and you're absolutely right. You, you want to go from uh, addressing the critical incident back to normal as soon as possible. Oh, let's see if we got Gator back yet. All right. Sheriff Deloshi, back with us? Uh, Curtis, it looks like we lost your friend, uh, Sheriff Deloche. Either that, my or, he to, either that <laughs> or he had to take a call, it's an important call. But I have a question for Chief Hi, Garcia. Chris. How much um, do politicians, and I, I, I know the answer, but I want you to expound upon it. Say, like, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, BL, BLM come to... Um, um, to your area or Antifa, um, law enforcement normally back in the day would know how to handle that. But because you have um, politics involved, you, you end up with the, the, the summer of peace or whatever, where they ride it for like almost three months. 
how, yeah. how do police deal with that? You know, it must be very well, frustrating. It, it is. It is. Um, and certainly, uh, in my experience of 37 years, I've seen all forms of governor of government. In actually, in all levels of policing, you know, uh, city, county, state, and federal, and we can all speak on the federal piece now, can't we? Um, but my point being is that uh, it can be very frustrating. It, it takes a very strong police chief to say to city council or the mayor or the city managers, it takes a very strong chief level officer. I don't care if it's the police or fire to say, no, no, no. I'm in charge of this. I need to handle this because my job is to save lives. You hired me for this expertise. You hired me for this subject matter, and, and I'm going to have to move in that direction. Um, yeah, I can. Th- I think politics plays a huge role. You know, I've got a question for you. Uh, did politics play a role in Uvalde? Well, you know, let, mm. let's, let's consider that for a second. Let's consider that for a second. Here you have the police chief of the school who in five days is going to be a city council member. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have the yeah. Uvalde police chief, who is the chief. And, and for me, I, got, I don't understand how that authority was given to, a, to the school chief to take on this most critical incident. I'm we've all you. heard the term. Yeah, we've all heard the term unified command. Why couldn't all three and why couldn't the, the police chief of Uvalde the, the police chief of the school district and the Department of Public Safety all work together to come to a decision to address not a barricaded person, but an active shooter. Why did it take an hour to make that determination? Did, did politics have something yeah. to do with that? No, and then you add on the fact that the mayor said that the chief can take that uh, council position. I mean, wait a minute. There's got to be a little hanky panky going on in there. I mean, they might be drinking yeah, buddies I, or something. It, 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 I tell you what, it, it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. When I heard that that he was going to be the council member in five days, well, in essence, he's one of the chief's new bosses. And for and for the life of me, I cannot understand how someone can relinquish their authority as the chief over the entire city to a school chief who only has five employees. No, uh, something, something stinks. Something stinks to high heaven. And then you don't sit out there in the hallway while you hear rounds going off and people screaming. And a- I'm sorry. That, Annie, you're absolutely right. Um, it it would have been great if, if uh, those 911 calls had been triaged and, and, and relayed that information to them, but when you hear gunshots going off, you know what's going on in there. Well, my understanding yeah, is you, that the uh, Border Patrol tactical unit, they were told to stand down too, and after some point they said, you know, the heck with this, we're going in. And they they just went by gut instinct and, and knowing what the right thing to do was. And they went in there right. and neutralized this guy. That's what well, it should have been it, it, the onset. Absolutely. Well, if I, if, I read an art, I read an article. I believe it was in the Epic Times uh, that the Border Patrol agent that took out the bad guy happened to have been across the street in the barber shop, and he asked the barber, "Do you have a gun?" He was off duty. Uh, it was an off duty one that that took him out. Um, so yeah, you know, you, 
you roll. You don't wait for your boss to tell you, no, sit in the hallway and listen to shots fired. And you know sounds echo in a school building. So you know shots oh, were being God. fired in that room. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know. I, there's just, there were so many red flags when this first came out. And, 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 you know, and, and let, me, let me just share this with you, too. Um, you've got 19 children dead and, and, two, and two teachers. And the first man we're going to hear from is the police chief and the school spokesman for the school of Robb Elementary. Uh, the first press conference was held, I guess, because he was the incident commander. But from the very onset, I'm thinking, where is the police chief from Uvalde? Where is he? I mean, that's their city. Uh, I don't understand how that decision was made to go with the, the school police chief, who's only got five officers working for him. He certainly doesn't have the resources that Uvalde PD has. And granted, that's a small city. It's a city of 14,000 people. It's, ironically, it's, it's a small city like Sandy Hook, which, which was a population of 10,000 people. You know, and, and that's a message in itself, too. There's a lot of small cities across America that are just not prepared for this type of critical incident. They're certainly not prepared from a radio standpoint, communication standpoint. No, we've got a, a really good sheriff in our county. Um, the, the guy's pretty damn good. And he has everything awesome. coordinated with the local municipality police departments, as well as handling mm-hmm. this entire county. And the first thing that happened after Uvalde was he got together with the school superintendent and went over everything that they had in place to see if anything additionally could be done. And immediately the two of them got in front of the public and said, all right, we're, we're going to be here. We're going to talk. You know, this is what we're doing. If you have any questions, we'll answer them. And that's what that's should awesome. have been and, done. And, and, yeah. Absolutely. And please don't, don't misunderstand me to the audience out there. There's a lot of great police departments out there, big and small. Um, I'm, just, I'm just talking about this particular incident and what mm-hmm. happened and how it was handled. Because certainly there was some issues yeah. there, no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, obviously the kid was troubled. And again, why wasn't this reported? You know, there's the way of saying, see something, say something. Uh, yes, what was absolutely. the reporting mechanism for someone that was troubled like him? Why wasn't he, he on the radar? Why was he not on the radar? Yeah, it's a great question. Great question. Mm. Now, um, does your company do the facial recognition and everything else? Because I know a lot of places uh, got rid of it, and now they're finding with the increase in crime, they really do need that facial recognition to help deter crime, and not only that, find the perpetrator and bring them and prosecute them, unless you got to revolve yeah. your justice like New York City. No, we don't. Uh, Quest does not do facial recognition. It's not one of our technologies. Uh, again, our expertise is, is mainly toward, uh, it started off when the company first started toward the technology, digitization technology toward soldiers and the military, and now um, the, the organization has asked me to take the public safety side of it and share that technology with police. And, and really, and we're going to take it all the way to police, fire, again, and the Office of Emergency Management. Because uh, we, we think that there is a great opportunity to get this technology in all those first responders, certainly the police and fire, to put it in their hands so they can see what they're fighting not just rely on information coming in secondhand. Sometimes secondhand information can be reliable, but sometimes we all know it cannot be. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, with in this case with Uvalde using drones and robots to look into the room uh, would have been very helpful. Uh, having eyes and boots on the ground where you needed them outside the windows would have been helpful, and it would have, those tools would have helped those boots on the ground do the job they needed to do. Again, why wasn't the proper department dispatched, and why weren't these actions taken? taken? And, you know, yeah, something else we have to consider, too, I believe, a lot of schools today are built with no windows in the classroom, and I, I, wow. I really think they wow. should have windows. That's an interesting point. Yeah, you're you're right about that. That's a that's a very interesting point. Yeah, you know the you, having access to to save a life is is the first option we have to have, and if the only option you have is coming through the door, that that certainly limits that possibility. It makes it much harder. You're going to have to break through that door. It's a great point. Yeah. Now with a lot of the technology that out there. Uh, you have it where the door cannot be breached unless you use an explosive. Uh, automatic door locks, ballistic uh, right. stuff on the windows so they can't be smashed. Uh, plating within the door to prevent the door from being breached. Uh, it, it makes absolutely no sense. It's good if you want to lock yourself in to keep the bad guy out, but once the bad guy is in, you're stuck. You're, it's like shooting fish in a pond, and not to be so cool about saying it in that manner, but essentially, it's what you're, you're offering the perpetrator. Yeah, boy. And you, I mean, theoretically, he doesn't have to barricade the door. The door's being done by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wow. it it can work to help you, and it can work to harm you, depending upon how it's deployed. And again, well, you need right. a backup exit. There should there should always be a plan B. And I don't see where there was a plan B in this instance at all. No, un- unfortunately not, and I think that's what we're seeing now more and more. Uh, it's just unfortunate how this information co- has been coming out piecemeal, piecemeal, inaccurate, piecemeal, piecemeal, inaccurate, uh, because we all know that for public safety, you have to have that transparency and accountability, but it's, but it's got to be valid information. Yeah, even their governor was upset. He was really, I mean, he was on fire about being lied to and, and deceived. And I think some absolutely. heads are going to roll. Yeah, absolutely. So I, again, I couldn't agree with him more. And again, here is where you asked the critical qu- uh, question, Chief. How much politics played into what occurred here? And who ultimately will be held responsible? Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, um, this and in the world we're living in today, um, and, and, uh, and in, in many cases, rightly so, you know, you know the, look, when, when law enforcement makes a decision, we stand behind those decisions, and we have to. And we have to be accountable for those decisions as well. We, you know, we're responsible for the decisions we make. And, uh, and certainly when I look at this situation and what happened out there, um, man, there is, there is some serious accountability needed to be addressed as we start um, finding answers to what happened in Uvalde, Texas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you with us, Chief, and we welcome you to come back at any time. Um, there's always a lot. I got Before I let you go, in the recent rise in, and I'm not going to call it gun violence, in shooting violence, 
because a gun does not create violence. It's the person behind it who actually shoots, uh, creates the violence. Um, your technologies, would that help in cutting down in instances? Would the uh, law enforcement and civilians be able to utilize it to detect and prevent another incident like that? You know what? I'm going to say yes, because the, the, the thing about it is, is I firmly believe that our technology isn't just for critical incident management. Uh, my goal is to move this technology because I believe it's applicable. I want to move it into crime suppression, daily crime suppression, daily crime prevention, and arrest apprehensions. What better, what better opportunity than when you have an area that's, that you may have an active rapist working or a, or a serial uh, burglar working in the area to have tech, this type of technology, this eye in the sky, so to speak, that doesn't depend on being installed permanently in a location, and then you're, you're basically a stationary camera. What better technology to have than a technology that can move with the incident or move with the suspect and then provide that technology to your first responders live on video in their hands? Interesting. Very interesting. And as you go out into the private sector, do you see it for, like, large corporations um, or, or, like, for example, the school districts, things like that, or you have a large church, (laughs) something like that, moving this into there to help them with it? Because there's now an increase in shootings at churches. Annie, man, you're you're good. You're really good. I'm telling you, uh, this application this this application has a lot of of opportunity in all kinds of venues. I, I mentioned earlier special events. Uh, we all know what happened in Houston, Texas, when that crowd started to rush the stage. Yeah. If this if this technology was deployed, that would have been clearly visible uh, through drones to the coordinators, not only the police, but also the special event coordinators, and the relief of moving people out could have occurred. So, yes, this this technology has many opportunities. It can be used in many ways. You've got an open-air Super Bowl coming up, or you've got a a Super Bowl coming up, period, that even even in an enclosed stadium, you want to see what's going on outside. You want to be able to respond. You don't want to depend on just a helicopter. You, you want to be able to have the technology that sends that information from the helicopter because it has our technology in, on there all the way down to the officer on the ground, all the way down to the command post, whether it's the police department, the fire department, or the Office of Emergency Management, or a joint operation center with the city, state, and county, and the federal. Because I've been in now, command post where the FBI has been with us. You can always trust on the FBI to take credit for something they didn't do. <laughs> right? I know when you came out the department now. I kind of know when you came out of the department now. Oh, man. No, because I'm, I'm thinking in so many different ways. And you can tell I used to be very, very good in sales. Uh, I've owned a few yeah. businesses and stuff. And, so, a matter of fact, this is a true story. Uh, when I was called into the guidance counselor's office uh, in my junior year in high school, uh, he sat me down uh-huh. and said, Anne-Marie, 
take secretarial courses, and marry your boss. <laughs> Two years later, I had 13 employees. I was walking into the adult education uh, courses, and he looked at me. He goes, oh, you're taking my advice, and you're going to take secretarial courses? And I said, no, Mr. Hodgkiss. I'm here to teach one of your courses. I've got 13 employees and a storefront right down the street. <laughs> He's like, oh, wow. He's like, you don't challenge me. Don't, don't, don't you challenge me. But um, I, I'm thinking that I have the ring system around my home because uh, uh, yes. shortly after my husband passed away, I developed a stalker. <laughs> and oh, you don't wow. mess with this girl. <laughs> but with the ring wow. system, you can set up a perimeter. You can actually define a certain area. Because when you mention sporting events and concerts and things like that, outdoor events, especially like what happened July, uh, not July, January 6th in, D, in uh, Washington, D.C., at the Capitol, uh, setting up Absolutely. where it alerts you if someone hits the perimeter that should not be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it would have been very effective so, you know, there, too. Yeah, because if someone... For example, you, once in a while you get someone from the crowd that decides to streak across the football field or baseball field, alert you to the person's actions before they hit the fence, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. See? Maybe you need me on sales. <laughs> I am. I'll call you back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chief, it has been such a pleasure to have you with us, and I want to thank you for joining us, and I welcome you back again. Awesome. I'd love to. Anytime. Anytime, man. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Give my thanks to the sheriff. Oh, I will. I will. And people will find you at kwest.com. And there's a link on the show page so that when they listen to the archives, they can go directly over there and learn more about your company and the hard work you guys do. God bless you. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you all. Take care. All right. All right. Thank you, Darrell. Bye-bye now. Thank you. All right. All right, uh, Curtis, it looks like we may have still lost Gator. So I guess it's yeah. just you and I. I'm not sure what happened. He, Like I said, he may have oh. to take in another call or something. This is his personal phone. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. All right. Um, just trying to find some of this stuff. Um, here in Arizona, <laughs> would have liked to have asked the chief president, but he's now down in Dallas, Texas. Um, there seems to be an election, election integrity group that said over 19,000 late ballots were invalidated. That is interesting. Wow. Yeah. So when someone so says are, are you there talking, was... Are you talking the recent primaries or 2020? 2020. 2020. Wow. So the, this coming midterm election is going to be very interesting to watch to see what happens because I know Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, and numerous other states have already successfully passed uh, election integrity laws to help tighten the election integrity coming up to this upcoming midterm election. And uh, we'd love oh, to yeah. see what's going to happen in some of these other places, such as Maricopa County in Arizona. Um, 19,000. Wow. Yeah. It says that uh, more than 20,000 ballots were transported from the U.S. Post Office after Election Day. And Maricopa County only rejected 934 of those ballots 
That means more than 19,000 late ballots were invalidated and should have been rejected. Wow. Yeah, nobody nobody follows the law anymore these days. Uh, it's all about winning at any cost. Yeah. And that just so Yeah, ballots were picked up a day after the election. They were due the day of the election, not the day after the election. And they were counted. So I'm wondering how much that would have changed the results of the election in Arizona. And well, I can tell you right now, the, those on the left for sale wouldn't have made no change. It wouldn't have made no difference. <laughs> mm. But that's what they're saying. But we are, we are finding election irregularities. They did occur. Does not mean that it was blatant in every single state, but some are a little bit more obvious than others. And no one has ever answered the question of what happened to that tractor trailer that left Long Island, New York, with ballots for Georgia. I mean, how do you fill a tractor trailer with Georgia ballots in New York? I'm sorry. I don't think there's enough people living on Long Island, New York, to fill a tractor trailer that are Georgia residents. So uh, what blaming on a ban- Blaming on a banana crime yeah. family. <laughs> or Genevieve. <laughs> Genevieve. <laughs> Oh, man. So there's there's a lot of questions and stuff coming up lately, and uh, it would be interesting to see what the answers are. And, uh, oh, geez, I don't even know where to go with this one piece of interesting information. Uh, Queen Camilla Mella Harris uh, was supposed to make the, I believe she made the announcement uh, yesterday, that the Biden administration is discharging all outstanding federal student loans borrowed by former Corinthian college students, providing a $5.8 billion in loan cancellations to 560,000 borrowers. Wow. Wow. Um, The loan, the group loan discharges applies to all former students who attended any campus owned or operated by Corinthian Colleges Incorporated since the company was founded in 1995 through its closure in 2015. Um, they were, uh, the administration was citing multiple uh, reasons that uh, the Department of Education will notify the former students in the coming weeks through a letter. Then the actual discharges will follow in the months after. They have... Um, determined that the borrowers were subject to, quote, illegal conduct at Corinthian. Now, isn't that up for a court or law enforcement to determine, not the Biden administration? You would think so. Yeah. Now, Corinthian faced multiple investigations and lawsuits for defrauding students out of money in federally backed loans. Uh, Since Corinthian closed, uh, the left have been called on, especially Elizabeth Warren, has called on the Department of Education to provide relief. But that relief should come through legal actions and not an executive order. Now, here's the trick to this whole thing. The people that still have those loans out and are not paid in full get the relief. 
that anyone that paid their loan back in full get no relief. Um, why is it up to the Biden administration to make this, and I'm going to call it exactly what it is, a judgment? And why is it not a court making the judgment? This is, this is very interesting. And why isn't there legislation coming out of the legislature that say, well, we agree that these students were defrauded, uh, and we agree something should be done to reimburse them, but it should be a reimbursement across the board. And why is it coming at the expense of the taxpayer and not at the expense of the guilty party? I don't know. I think uh, when Biden was asleep, somebody whispered in his ears, you are the emperor. You can do whatever you want. And he's acting like it. Very, very interesting, I think. So this is something to look at because they've been screaming and screaming and screaming for uh, college loan forgiveness. But what does that say to the people that paid their loan? What does that say to future loan borrowers? I mean, fine, it's one thing when you're defrauded, but they're still talking about passing either by executive order or by the left through legislation and having Biden sign it, forgiving all college loan debt. And who pays yeah. that loan debt? That's you and that's me. Right. That's your you neighbor. Know, that's your grandchildren. What's next? Um, car payment loans? They're going to forgive car payment loans? First of all, the federal government shouldn't be involved in contracts between individual citizens and a business. Because then you're playing favoritism, you know? It's almost like uh, during COVID, they decided what, what businesses would be open and what would be closed. And a lot of those that were closed never reopened. So it's a, it's a slippery slope for the government to get involved in private contracts between private companies and citizens. It's not the business of government to be in business. It's the business of government to provide public safety and services, but not to dictate what business should or should not do. And that comes all the way back to dictating what businesses can remain open during COVID and what businesses must close. So big box stores like Walmart may remain open, but the mom and pop that may have only one or two employees – and, that's, and you're in and out, one, two, three, less exposure than you would have walking past people in Walmart in a very crowded store. Why can't the mom and pop store on the corner survive? Why can't that local diner or restaurant stay open? But you can have the big chains stay open. This is, business, this is government determining what businesses succeed or fail. No, it's up to the free market to decide what businesses succeed or fail. It's up to the consumer to help decide what businesses succeed and fail. But if they provide the proper services, not government. And we have gotten so far to the left with this administration. It is now government dictating business. And that's not. So I don't know. What's your opinion on that, Curtis? Well, I'm, I'm all in with it. you. More. Um, <laughs> government, I believe, is agenda 
at least the form of government we have right now, to eliminate the middle class. You know, in a socialist um, um, utopia, you can only have two classes, the upper class and the, the lower class. There's no middle class. And what better way mm-hmm. to um, control the middle class than to come up with some um, health crisis that they exploit to the fullest and destroy the middle class by dictating, you know, who can be open for business and who can't. I mean, I was in Orlando last weekend, and you'd be surprised at the number of shops and things that, that closed on COVID, but they never reopened. It's like a ghost town, except for big yeah, corporations is. like Disney and, and Universal. Now, they survive, you know. Unfortunately, uh, and we know Disney, what they've become, they've become the woke and sexualizing and indoctrinating our children. Uh, and Disney is losing uh, fans. It's losing people showing up at their theme parks by the droves. It's losing investors. So oh, yeah. what was once a great company set up on a great idea by Walt Disney, as is probably on the road to failure. And uh, unless oh, yeah. they get unwoke, they will fail. I mean, they lost me some decades ago with the um, <clears throat> that day or two or weekend that they they set aside for just the LGBTQRST whatever that group. X Y Z P. Yeah, I mean, whatever people do. You know, that, that flip their trigger, that's fine with me. But I don't think you should have a special day at a business like Disney World set aside for you. You know, you can go any day just like the rest of us, you know. I mean, we don't we don't practice the, the fact that we heterosexuals, you know, we don't have a heterosexual heterosexual day. <laughs> so I, I really don't see the purpose for it other than to um just to to raise the profile of that community, you know. That's that's my views on that. Yeah, I mean, you're actually singling out uh, for special treatment one segment of society over any others, and that's not a true America. Uh, we have we were founded on the ideals of no matter who you are, we are looked all as equals in the eye of the law. And you treat each other with equal respect. And we've gotten away from those basic moral values. Um, they've taken God away from us. And they've, take, they've broken down the family units like never before. Um, we have more unmarried single, uh, single parents, single household parents. Um, and we see statistically a rise in drug abuse, uh, sexual abuse. Um, alcoholism, suicide, and joblessness. And oh, yeah. unless we turn around and c- come back to our basic moral values of respecting each other, no matter who you are, I don't care what you do behind closed doors, but don't force it down on me. And I don't want you to stick your nose into what I do behind my closed doors. That's my business. But if we treat each other respect, courtesy and uh, that's all I ask that's all I ask but we're down to our last few minutes here Curtis 
and uh, it went you're not going to be with, with us. You, yeah. Yeah, I won't be there. I got a book signing. So they went back fast today with just three guests. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, where's your book signing? If anyone's in your area and they want to go. It's going to be downtown uh, Jacksonville. I can't remember the name of the hotel, either the Omni or the Holiday, whatever. But I can I can give you that information later. You can put it up online on the show's thing. Uh, is, but I'll be there is your website still, your website still yeah, up and running? Nope. I still got to reconstitute it. I'm glad you mentioned well, that to me. Why don't you put it up on our Facebook Southern Sense page? And if anyone was trying to get into YouTube, I have officially been banned by YouTube again. <laughs> Matter of fact, wow. the Global Enlightenment Radio that carries the show also got banned because they were carrying my show. <laughs> they yeah, claimed I was giving out misinformation. Yeah. They claimed I was giving out misinformation. So. <laughs> it's information they don't like. It's the truth. Um, I don't like the um, truth. What is that, that line in that movie? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah, a few good men, I think, um, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And Tom oh, Cruise. and by, yeah. Yeah, by the way, I did see the uh, Tom Cruise new movie, um, Maverick. Maverick? Yeah. 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 Those, um, those Navy Fly Boys. Yeah. Well, um, he was taking some heat, and obviously it was a thumb in the eye of China because he was wearing the original flight jacket that you saw in the first movie that was his father's. They had the flag of Taiwan, and what was the other one? There was, there was two flags that were on there. I know one was Taiwan, and I forget what the other one was, but both of them pissed off China. Now, originally... Their funding for the movie was coming out of China. And when they withdrew the funding, um, they said, well, he's going to wear the original jacket that has the Taiwanese flag on it. He's, he's going to wear his father's jacket, and he does. You do see it in the movie rather clearly. <laughs> so I don't wow. think uh, Top Gun Maverick's going to play too well in communist China. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, from what I heard, they haven't decided if they're going to let it play there yet. No, they, they won't because of the jacket. And they're not going to cut that scene out of the movie. They can't. It's hey. a pivotal part of the movie. But in the original trailers getting up to before the movie was completed, they had removed all the footage showing the jacket. So at no time in the trailer... So once the Chinese money came out, jacket was back in. So yeah, and it I is grossing money hand over fist. It How is grossing like money it? hand Um Some areas it was just kind of long and soap opery, and then in other areas it was fantastic. Um, overall, I liked the movie, um, but I think they could have cut some of the soap opera part out, part of it out. Oh yeah, I'm just I just like to see the the, the airplanes myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll love the footage coming off the carrier and everything else because it'll it'll bring things back to you. Uh, and some of the stunts he pulls, you'll 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 appreciate that. You, I know that you will enjoy it. Top Gun. Yep. So who do we have next so, uh, for the show? 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But we're going to have a lot lined up. Um, I've been reading that new uh, Naomi Wolf book, um, The Bodies of Others, uh, about the uh, government lockdown and imposition on removing our constitutional rights in using the um, screen of the, the good of the public, the good of them all, uh, forgetting about shooting just out the water, you know, our constitutional and individual rights and liberties, uh, freedoms and liberties, I should say. Anyway, we will be back uh, next week, and we'll have something lined up and something good. So I leave you all with uh, the friend, the song from my friend Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until then, I say good night and God bless. I'm praying for this land I love, America. America, the home of the free But there are people making plans To change America They've no respect for her What matters most to me That's why I stand for the flag And I kneel at the cross for the friends I have loved and lost And I still believe we God we trust And the freedom I fought for is granted us I hope it's not too late To save America
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.